0: This is my bias i don't want to lift and now i really don't want to lift because i don't want to get an esophageal perforation i think the vast majority of the workup can be done there to strongly suggest it and then we can go on from there to confirm it
1: i'm sorry you said air
0: yes
2: i said air <laughs> and i guess the primer for this piece the lead-in is you're a chump if you
0: order a type and cross and the answer to many of my questions may be it depends <laughs> because you know it's a it's a very nuanced type of situation
3: Oh, that's more like it. Now we're getting to the real world. Thank you.
4: Hey, how you doing? Here we go. With a push of unseen breath in me, I peep into dust. Accumulated on the veins of green leaves. The blaze of July sun. <laughs> Tip your waitresses, alright?
5: Welcome, everybody. This is July 2022 MRAP. I am so excited to be here. We're in the heat of summer. It's fireworks, barbecues, all kinds of fun things. And I am here with my good friend, Dr. Anand Swami Nathan. Swami, how are you doing today?
6: I'm doing great, Channing. You know, you mentioned a lot of big things in July. One other thing that is really near and dear to your and my heart is we got new trainees walking in the door. So welcome to all of the new emergency medicine trainees. If you're not in EM and you happen to be listening to this, Welcome to the House of Medicine. We don't care what field you're in, we are so happy to have you here. And Jan, this time of year, it always renews my sense of optimism because you get these young docs walking through the door. They're all positive, they're all ready to go. And it's easy, easier at least for for us to kind of shed some of our crustiness that we've gathered over the years when we see those new faces walk in.
5: Yeah, we definitely kind of shed the crustiness. There's also a bit of a reminder of how. Little people know about practical things when they first come out of medical school and we have to start from scratch with a lot of ways. But, you know, I, I, I enjoy all of it. So I agree. Cycle of life begins again.
6: Hard to put yourself back into that place where you're like fresh out of med school and you know nothing. Yes. Because I know. I know when I walked in that first day, I didn't know anything. I know it happened, but it's really hard to remember what it was like literally knowing nothing. But we are really happy to have all of you guys on board.
5: Absolutely. Welcome to emergency medicine.
6: Yay. All right. Well, we got a great emergency medicine case to start with, Jan. Some bread and butter stuff. And it's funny because I've been having this string of interesting fast track cases, not necessarily like, oh, this person came in with finger pain and they ended up having a massive MI, but just interesting bread and butter fast track cases that that have a little bit of nuance. So I'm going to continue with that theme. The case. I am working in Fast Track, I got a 33 year old man who presents with a laceration to his foot. He tells me he was in his hotel room, he was walking around barefoot, as people do, and he stepped on what he thinks is a piece of glass because he doesn't know, because he couldn't find it. He thinks it's still in his foot. And he's got this foreign body sensation. He kind of wrapped his foot with a towel at the hotel, got in his car and drove himself to the emergency department. So when you hear that initial story, you see that on the board, what are your initial thoughts?
5: Well, my initial thought is always wear flip-flops in the hotel room, number one. And then number two is I'm feeling sorry for this guy. That sounds awful. These are really, really painful. That's one thing I'm thinking, which is pain control is gonna be key here. And then, of course, I'm gonna have to take a look at the wound and figure out whether or not there actually is glass in there.
6: And I think that can be really difficult to do. And we see lacerations all over the place. We don't think much about the amount of pain, but sole of the foot, palm of the hand, these are very sensitive places. And, And when you go in the room, nothing surprising. He looks pretty uncomfortable. His vital signs are fine. He's not exsanguinating out of his foot. And when we take a look at the foot itself, there's about a four to five centimeter lack on the volar surface of the left foot, just distal to the heel. There's a little bit of active venous oozing. Like I said, nothing spurting out. He's not going to hemorrhage and die. And grossly, I don't see a foreign body, but he swears that he feels something in there. So with that initial exam, what are the next steps that you're going to do in management?
5: Well, after exam, I'm usually moving to imaging. I want to take a more in-depth look. And probably the most common step and the most accessible test to do this is an x-ray.
6: I think that's where all of us are going to start. We're going to start with an x-ray. Almost that you can get that x-ray before you even go in because you want to know, is there a foreign body? But of course, assess the patient first. We're going to get that x-ray. But the question that always comes up is, how good is the x-ray for finding that foreign body? And I remember back when I was a resident, one of the attendings I worked with told me about a study that he did when he was a resident where they took chicken thighs and they put glass under the skin and then shot x-rays and said, how many times can we find the glass on this x-ray where we know there's a piece of glass? And he's like, it's much less than you think it is. It's not a hundred percent. And when you kind of dive into the literature, it tells you that overall x-rays will find about 85% of radio opaque foreign bodies. And if the glass is more than two millimeters in size, it's very likely you're going to find it with the x-ray. So I think we're going to get that x-ray. But if the x-ray is negative, do we stop there? Or are there other options that we should pursue in terms of imaging if the patient really feels like there's something there?
5: Well, of course, you have other options. So in terms of CT, you are probably going to find it on CT, but it might be kind of overkill, maybe too sensitive, that kind of thing. Obviously, lots of radiation involved. I remember this is one of the selling points for ultrasound, that ultrasound can be super helpful and you could even use it sort of in real time as you're trying to fish the thing out.
6: That's the problem with CT because CT will definitely find it.
5: Almost definitely, are
6: you going to find that foreign body? But it does seem a little overkill. That I'm looking for a piece of glass in someone's foot, and I got a CT scan. Ultrasound is really interesting because it can find the foreign body. It's very good at finding foreign bodies. It doesn't matter if the foreign body is radio opaque or not. So if the person tells you that they got a piece of a twig stuck in their foot or something like that, ultrasound's probably better than X-ray. It might be better than CT. There's some studies that say ultrasound might be better than CT for those kind of foreign bodies. And it also helps you to localize where that foreign body is. You could even use it while you are trying to remove the thing in real time. So ultrasound, very useful here. But I will tell you, Jan, that I did go right to the x-ray.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's what I would do too. I mean, honestly, that's what I would do. And it will at least tell you whether or not you're like on the right track. And also, you know, if you get a good x-ray tech who marks where the laceration is, you can get some ideas to how close it is, you know, what direction it is. You know, you get it really in a couple different views so you can get a little information. So I think that's pretty common. All right, so we got that x ray, and what it showed was a foreign body, a radio opaque foreign body.
6: It's about one centimeter. So it was clearly there. And this was probably consistent with what the patient felt stepping on a piece of glass. There's something in there. So now we got to challenge number two. So we know there's something there. We want to get it out. Now we got to provide some analgesia so we can actually get it out.
5: Now, this is a real challenge because you can go for local anesthesia, and that's probably what most people would do. You try to infiltrate locally, but you know, Getting through into a heel, for example, where there's thick callus and it's a very painful area is not going to be fun. It's never all that successful. You can get somewhere with it. Your other option would be to go big guns and do procedural sedation. But honestly, I've never done that. It seems like way more than you probably need. So I'm thinking you might be leading up to something, you know, a little bit interesting, like a nerve block. There's always a nerve block, right? <laughs> right. And There's always
6: a nerve <laughs> block that can help us out. I have not had very good luck with local anesthesia on the sole of the foot. I've tried many times, and even when I feel like, oh, I gave a ton of Lido, would that be there? I still don't get a great amount of analgesia. I agree with you, procedural sedation seems like overkill. We do have nitrous, so I could have used nitrous, which might have been the perfect modality, but I decided to go with a nerve block, the posterior tibial nerve block. And the posterior tibial nerve is a branch of the sciatic nerve. It travels posterior to the tibial artery And then it's going to be found just posterior to the medial malleolus. And you could do this with a blind technique, but of course we have ultrasound. So that's what we're going to use. And when you block this nerve, if you get a good block, you pretty much block the entire sole of the foot. There's some exceptions. The most medial and lateral parts are not fully blocked, but most of the sole of the foot is blocked. And that's exactly what we needed.
5: So this seems like a perfect option. I know that these nerve blocks are not that hard to do. I am not an ultrasound fellowship trained person, so I don't feel super comfortable with it. So I'm hoping there's some video that can like walk me through this and I would be willing to try it. And
6: just like there's always a nerve block, there's always a video. (laughs) And I'm not ultrasound fellowship trained either. I always like to be clear about this. These are things that I've learned as I've gone. And Jacob Avila made a great video for us, which is on MRAP HD of how to do one of these nerve blocks. And I'll be honest, I learned how to do this nerve block from Jacob as well. So I had a real expert teacher to show me how to do it. And it's really not that hard. What you want to do is frog leg the patient. You place the linear transducer about one to two centimeters above the medial malleolus. And you're going to find the nerve and the artery right next to each other. And if you travel just a little bit proximally, they'll separate just enough so that you can see the difference between the two. And then you go in with probably about four or five cc's of 0.5% bupivacaine. You want an out of plane technique, wait about five minutes and the patient's going to be numb. And that's exactly what happened with this patient. We found that nerve. We blocked it with a little bupivacaine, gave him about five or 10 minutes to be completely numb. And now we had a great analgesia. The patient wasn't very anxious. And now we could really explore that wound. We found the one centimeter piece of glass that we knew was there, took it out, closed the lack sent him off on his way, and Jan, aside from the fact that it was very satisfying, the patient was super impressed, super impressed with what we were able to do and really not cause any pain.
5: Well, you are very impressive, so I'm not surprised they were impressed, but it is a very satisfying procedure. You know, when you get in there with your forceps and you can actually like tink, tink, tink on the glass or the foreign body can actually feel it, you know you're close, Oh, then you just really want it. You know, and you when you finally get that glass out or the splinter or the needle or whatever it is, you know, you put it in the little, you know, the little kidney bean dish, the patient always wants to see it. They want to see it. They want to see what it oh, was. Yeah. They want to be angry at it. They want to be happy that it's out all at the same time.
6: And the things that you need that maybe you're not thinking of needing is you want a little metal cup. So when you take the thing out and you drop it in, it makes that little <laughs> clink, clink, clink sound. Yes. Like every time they pull a bullet out on TV, right? You want that clink, clink, clink sound. And then you get a, a little urine specimen cup. You put that thing in there and you give it to them. You're like, it's yours, man. Take it home. It's all yours. And, and I will not lie to you, Jan. He really wanted it. They do. He really wanted that little piece of thing. And you're right. Like when you can, when you can feel it with the forceps, it's a really great feeling. You can also use ultrasound, in that dynamic mode to really know that you're getting near it, that you're, you need to extend the incision or whatever you need to do to get to it exactly where it is, so that's a nice way to use ultrasound as well. And honestly, this was my best patient of the day. It was the most satisfying thing I did all day, completely made a 12 hour shift in fast track completely worth it.
5: Yep. That's what you need. You need a little procedure to get you through it.
6: All right, Jan. Well, that is our case for the month. And now I want to get into some of the highlights of the show because we do have some really fantastic pieces. There's a great piece from Mike Weinstock and Mike Palacci on the necrotizing soft tissue infections, which really do create a little bit of fear in us. But I think with this kind of information, we can be empowered to make sure we find them. The other piece I really liked was one on inflammatory bowel disease that Vanessa Cardi did. And we're actually bringing this over from the ROP world. And there's a complimentary segment on ROP this month that gives a little bit more information of the continued care outside of the emergency department for those patients.
5: And remember that for those of you who are new to the MRAP universe, ROP is right on prime. It's a primary care podcast that covers all kinds of interesting segments. So if you've got extra time this month, check it out. My highlights for the month include a piece that Britt Guest did about a case of cardiac arrest during dialysis. I don't want to give away exactly what happened, but it's something a little unusual, so take a listen. I also enjoyed the pediatrics piece this month, which is a deep dive on intranasal medication administration for analgesia, and anything that you can do to keep needles away from kids, I am all in favor of.
6: Absolutely. Those pieces are great. It's really a month chock full of some amazing content, really running the gamut of emergency medicine from the dialysis emergencies to the foreign body in the foot, Jan. We got everything covered for you this month. And Jan, we're going to be back on the other side of the program with a fantastic mailbag, something sent in from a listener. I always love the audio from listeners. And then we've got our mega summary after that. So Jan, we're going to launch into the month and then I will see you on the other side.
5: See you on the other side. Let's go.
6: Okay, welcome first-year residents
4: to Dr. Sklar's cadaver lab, okay, and we're going to be using real cadavers to help you train for some of your more difficult procedures. And today we're going to be learning the posterior forensicotomy, and I'll be using this scalpel, and we're going to start by making an decision right here. Wow! What are you doing? Oh my god, what? What is happening here? You cut me. I thought you were a cadaver. Oh god, I'm going to have to call it the distributor. Cadaver actors, how can I help you? Hello, yes. One of your cadavers was an actual person who's alive.
2: That's correct. All of our actors at Cadaver Actors are live models.
4: What? No, it says cadaver actors. Yep. I thought that meant that the actors were cadavers, not that the cadavers were actors.
7: I'm sorry, sir. We only employ living models.
4: So they're all actors? That's correct. None of them are dead. Exactly. Well, that's not clear in the brochure. I'm going to have to call you back, because I have a lot of cold people downstairs. All right, you have a wonderful day. Fine. We're going to need some hypothermia, kit.:
2: It's time again for... I think it's, uh, it's... Oh, God. What is it? Oh, it's... Scott, Scott Weingott. Critical care mailbag.
6: Hey, Scott. What's going on, man? How are you? What's up, Swami, man? How's the uh, pandemic treating you? Oh, uh, are we still in that? I think so. Yeah, I think we're still in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm here and I'm alive, so I'm going to count myself. That's all we by. could
2: ask at this stage of the yeah, game. Yeah.
6: Yeah, exactly. Well, Scott, we have a letter that you wrote to me, a little bit unusual for critical care mailbag, but you wrote me a letter and said, we got to cover this. So uh, we're going to cover critical care transfusion. And I will, for the listeners say that before this, you asked me, Swami, can I put you on the spot and see how much you know about transfusion, which I immediately responded to you with, yes, and I know nothing.
2: Which is perfect because uh, now we will educate both you, Swami, and the audience. So it's going to work out fantastically. And I guess the primer for this piece, the lead in is you're a chump if you order a type and cross.
6: All right. So well, let's get into that because you know when, when I click off my orders, The first order that comes up if I want to send something to the blood bank is type and screen, but I do have a type and cross in there. So what's the difference between the two? Like, why should I order one or the other?
2: Absolutely. Well, so at least in the places I've worked, like every patient in existence, even if there's no chance they're going to get blood, winds up with a type and screen. Now, this is for better or for worse, but let's discuss what you're actually ordering when you order a type and screen. What do you remember from your medical school days about what a type and screen is, Swami?
6: all right, so type is type. So that's like, the, are they A? Are they B? Are they O? Are they AB? Right? That's the type part. The screen, I'm assuming, is going to be some screen for like minor antibody groups.
2: Yeah, you're on it, man. So type and screen gets you three things. So you get your ABO grouping, just like you said, you get your RH status, right? Positive or negative. And then they do an antibody screen for non-ABO antibodies. And in some places, in most places, I think at this day, that's an automated antibody screen. And so it's just being done by a machine. Let's go down two pathways from this point on. Most of your patients are going to be negative on that automated screen. So now you have a blood type, you have an RH, and the magical computer has said this patient has none of the minor antibodies you alluded to, Swami. So now you're in that world, okay?
6: Yeah, so that's a good place to be. And those are minor groups, and I'm sure that that screen doesn't get all of those minor groups, but it gets the majors of the minor groups, I guess, right? So the most common ones that you might be seeing?
2: Yeah, it gets the ones that the blood bank cares about because even without the automated, they're not really screening for these unless they knew something ahead of time, even in the old days when it wasn't being done by an automated system. So the ones you care about are being screened up front.
6: All right, so I got my type in screen done. I can't imagine why I care too much about anything beyond that. You don't. So now let's
2: pretend you actually had a patient who was on the border of maybe needs blood during their ED or hospital stay, maybe doesn't, okay? And so let's say it's a GI bleed, but, you know, they're not exsanguinating, their vital signs are rock solid, but they're coming into the hospital because it was an upper GI bleed. So you got this patient, and you sent one type and screen, and you're smart, you say, oh, maybe they will need blood, you send two type and screens. And we're down the pathway of they have none of these Minor antibodies, the Kel, the Duffy's, the kids, etc. Now, I would find, and you tell me if it's different in your world, Swami, that most of my residents, thinking they are clever, or you know, if you're in a community shop, you might be doing this too. There's no, there's no shame in this because I never received this lecture. Will type and cross that patient for blood.
6: Yeah, absolutely. It definitely happens. And honestly, I'm not really sure why. It just was like the routine, so it gets done. Now, in your mind,
2: what does a type and cross mean?
6: Uh, that's the part. I, I'm not really sure what it means. I got to be honest with you. I've said it before. I need a type and cross, but I don't know why, and I don't know what it
2: means. Okay. So, what type and cross means, or just a cross match, because the typing was already done in your typing screen in this patient. A cross matching of blood means however many units you tell them, they will take those blood units off the shelf, you know, the closest ones they could find at hand, and they will actually spin the patient's blood with that unit of blood just as a last confirmatory screen for ABO compatibility. And then they will take those units of blood and actually stick them on a shelf. Now, that's in the old days, and there might still be places in the United States that are doing this by hand as a routine, but almost every place that I know about is doing this procedure as well by computer, meaning nothing is actually done. They have the units in their computer system already with its ABO type and RH type, and then they, since they've already screened the patient, they know the patient's ABO and RH type. And so all they are doing in almost every blood bank in the United States is the computer says, here's four units of blood, because you type and crossed for four units, and they are just taking that blood out of the blood system. They can't use these for other patients until it gets returned. The cross-match expires or someone calls, this never happens, calls and says, we don't need these units anymore. That's never happened in the history of my ED. So you're just stealing blood from the system. But, and here's the real kicker, if you instead just called down to the blood bank and said, I need four units of blood for this patient without a cross-match at all, they would just type in four units of blood for this patient into the computer system. And it would say, grab these four units because it's a computerized cross-match. So you've saved no time at all for this patient getting blood, aside from the time for them to type it into the computer. And what you have now avoided is stealing blood products from the system. Now tell me if that makes sense or not so let me
6: it does make sense. It sounds like this is really kind of a leftover. It's something that we needed before, or or at least it had a role before. And now because of the way that our systems work, we don't really need it. And what it kind of says to me, and we've had conversations with Tom Delorey in the past saying the same thing, you need to call your blood bank and have a conversation with them of what's going on and what you need, because that can really help you to decide what it is actually I have to order. Well, You know, it's not
2: such a remnant. You're absolutely right on the path we were on, Swami. You're perfect on that because this patient had no screened antibodies. Everything changes when they did screen positive for those antibodies. And this is really the divergence that you need to learn and understand to maximize your interactions with the blood bank is we went down this path and we had this GI bleeder no antibodies on the type and screen. There is absolutely no reason to cross match blood. Do not do it. If they need the blood immediately, as in like right now, then what you should be doing is just activating your massive transfusion set. Or, you know, and we should talk about this. We'll put a pin in this, Swami. Let's come back to this idea of an intermediate massive transfusion kind of role in your hospital. But let's say you had a patient exanguinating. you're not waiting for cross match blood. You're going to tell them send up. A pack in your massive transfusion, so that's one category of immediacy. In the second group of, yeah, you know, their are BP drifted down. I want to give them some blood. You've lost nothing by not cross matching, and your hospital has gained because the blood you might have taken out and put on that shelf could be the one unit of blood in that blood bank for the patient next door to your patient who actually has antibodies and they can't find another unit of blood that's compatible with that patient. So if they don't have antibodies, stop doing the cross match. Don't cross match blood.
6: Yeah. Well, we talked to Tom about this because those minor groups, one of our listeners asked, you know, I have a patient who needs transfusion right now. They need blood right now. Do I need to wait for those minor groups? And Tom said very clearly, those minor groups rarely cause big problems when they don't match. So if you're in that situation with the unstable crashing patient, whether it be trauma, whether it be GI bleed, and they need blood right away, you don't have to wait For that screen for those minor antibody groups because they're not really going to be that relevant. But that's different from when you have what you said—the patient with the GI bleed who's not unstable right now—and you're thinking I'm going to need blood. Then you can wait for that screen to happen. But in the massively bleeding patient, you're not really running any risk of not having that screening process done first.
2: Tom's absolutely right. Obviously, he's one of the smartest guys out there on this. But let's go back to that top scenario of the type and screen—a patient with GI bleed stable now may need blood, and you actually now have in your mind space that the patient has antibodies. Well, this is an entirely different world because in an ideal situation, since this patient's immune system's not totally screwed, they're not exsanguinating, it's not good to give these patients antibody incompatible blood if you could avoid it. So these are the exact patients that a cross match was built for because now the blood bank could take its time and actually mix the potential unit and find out if it's gonna cause a reaction or not. This is called the extended cross match. Now, this brings up the key point I want to get across. first key point, stop routinely typing, crossing your patients. Second key point, you need to create a system with your blood bank where they call you on any ED patient that screens
6: positive for antibodies. Now, do you know if this happens at your shop, Swami? We do, because I get these calls all the time where I send a type and screen down. They call me back and say, hey, this patient has a lot of minor groups do you need blood now? Do you think that this patient is going to need blood in the next hour? Because if they do, I need to start working on it now to have that blood available to you when you need it. So they do call me. They're really good about doing this. And I never really quite understood exactly what they were asking for, but they, they call, they say, we've got these minor groups. Tell me if you're going to need blood right now or not. And usually the answer is, I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to need blood right now, but sometimes you can predict And in these situations, yeah, I tell them, yeah, I'm going to need blood pretty soon. They're like, okay, no problem. Now that I know, I can get working on it. So your
2: hospital is more advanced in their communication than most hospitals out there. And in fact, I've been at amazing level one trauma centers where this does not occur. So it's time for you to go and meet with your blood bank, someone from your department, and say to them, what happens in an ED patient who screens positive on their type and screen? And if the answer is, uh, well, we just have that information and they don't relay that to you like they're doing at your shop, Swami, then that has to change because you need to actually, on those patients, cross match blood if you even think they're going to use it. Now the risk benefit changes entirely and it's worth taking four units, five units, six units out of the blood supply for that individual patient if there is a chance they're going to need blood because losing those units is worthwhile. That's a benefit while. The thousands of units wasted on these ridiculously unnecessary type and crosses or cross matches for patients who have no antibody screen positive, that is where you are wasting blood bank resources and time. Now, you could go a step further, and what I would like to see at every place is somewhere in the EMR, right next to allergies, when they've been in your hospital in the past and it's known they have antibodies for that information to be there as well. Now, I bet you don't have that yet. Swan no,
6: we definitely don't have that, but that would be really useful. And I think these are the, the kind of places where the EMR can actually benefit both the clinician and the patient, but they're not built in because nobody's really made that call and said this needs to be in the system. But I think we've got now, Scott, and I know we have other stuff to get to, but let's just make sure that we, we sum this up. Point one, most patients don't need a type and cross. If their type and screen is negative, they don't have any of those minor groups. You don't need a, t- a cross match on that group. But number two, take home number two, which is just as important or maybe more important, is that if the patient screens positive for those minor groups, then you need the cross because you need to reserve that blood in the situation where you have that patient in front of you where are like, well, I don't need blood right now, but there's a good chance I'm going to need blood in the foreseeable future, in the immediate future. Absolutely. All right. Let's come back to the thing you put a pin in, Scott, before we forget. Yeah. Let's talk about that intermediate strategy. So we've, we've laid out two strategies here, right? We've got the patient is crashing and bleeding and we're going to do massive transfusion. And then we've got the patient who is bleeding, but they're hemodynamically stable, and it doesn't look like they're exsanguinating in front of you. And so you're like, well, let's have blood ready. Let's have those type in screens in the lab, but I'm not ordering blood yet. And then you said there's an intermediate order pathway that you think about.
2: So every hospital, if you want to have efficiency and you want it to work for the way the ED manages bleeding patients, you need an intermediate step between the case you laid out, You know, may need blood eventually, fine for now, and massive transfusion. Because massive transfusion, which is in many places across the country, the only way to rapidly get any amount of products beyond like one or two units, shuts down the entire blood bank. And the entire rest of the hospital now has no access to that. And you know, if you order massive transfusion on two patients, maybe you had a car crash, but only one of them was super sick, that's really going to screw the blood bank. And it's unnecessary. So it makes your life hard. It makes the blood bank's life hard. Because in many patients in trauma or, uh, you know, GI bleeds, you know they need blood now, but you don't know what they're going to look like after two units of blood. And to start massive transfusion setups in the blood bank for that is unnecessary. And they're going to yell at you. You know, when you call a blood bank for a massive transfusion and then you wind up transfusing two units of blood and one of FFP... That actually is, they start dinging in the department because you shut down our whole blood bank, they weren't that sick. And you're like, I don't know they were that sick. Their blood pressure was 60 over 40. And then they were 120 over 80 after three units of product that I didn't need anymore. How the hell am I supposed to know? So an intermediate pack provides something similar to this. In our place has two units of blood and two units of plasma. And it doesn't obligate the blood bank to do anything further for the next pack. While our massive transfusion set gets you a ton of product and they have to start making the second and third delivery the second they have that one done. And so the blood bank shuts down. This intermediate pack is huge because first of all, they could just have a few of these set up with universal donor plasma and universal donor RBCs. So they could just have them sitting there and all they have to do is grab you know, two and two, put them in a cooler and hand them to you. So you get it even more quickly than the massive transfusion because many times the massive transfusion sets They won't give out the products until they have the entire pack built. That takes a long time. It could take 10 or 15 minutes. But this, they just grab and go, two and two. They stick them in a cooler. Cooler comes up. Boom. The other beautiful thing about this is it allows you to utilize what we call the critical administration threshold, which is a patient who requires their third unit of RBC pretty much guaranteed to need massive transfusion. So now you have an intermediate screening step as well for the patients you don't know. They're unstable right now. They may look great after a little bit of blood. Should you activate massive transfusion or not? In a hospital where it's dichotomous, that's a really tough choice to make. But when you have this intermediate pack, getting to the point where I'm giving that first unit of plasma, because you don't want to match one-to-one RBCs and plasma on patients who are not going to actually need massive transfusion. That's actually probably harmful because of the immunomodulatory effects of giving things like plasma unnecessarily. So. I will, on a patient who is metastable, give one unit of blood, see how they look. Give the second unit of blood, ooh, they're still looking bad. Now I'm picking up that plasma. The second I pick up that third unit of product, that is an absolute indication to activate massive transfusion if you think they're going to need ongoing blood transfusion. So now you have a few things. You have a rapidity. You're not shutting down your blood bank. And it's a screen for the need of massive transfusion, a real screen, a clinical screen for it, not, you know, this uh, scores and stuff that have variable
6: accuracy. Does that make sense, Swami? Oh, it totally makes sense. And I, and I love the idea because it's, it's what we see with all disease is that it's not just one end of the spectrum or the other. There's a lot in between. And this gives us that flexibility. And I imagine that the blood bank would be pretty happy about having something like this where they don't have somebody yelling at them, I need it, I need it, I need it right now, because they have it ready to go right away, but they're also not over-activating massive transfusion. What I'd love to see is with this intermediate pack in place, does it actually decrease the quote-unquote false activation of the massive transfusion?
2: We studied, it absolutely does. Haven't pu- I shouldn't say study because we haven't published it, but we internally quality assurance, it, whoa, is the, there a difference in the decrease in massive transfusions that were unnecessary? And you know. I mentioned, you know, once you start getting to the ends of the pack, you, you should just activate massive transfusion of the screen. That implies that you're giving all of those units in the span of like 20 minutes. Oftentimes, we'll do these intermediate packs and we'll call them stat packs. And, you know, we've given that first pack over the course of an hour. And, you know, now they're just, they're fading out a little bit. They need a little bit more product, but they definitely don't need massive transfusion. We'll just order another one of those packs. And get more. And, you know, they will start backfilling with actual type-specific products on those second packs by that point. But it gets us the units quickly when we need it. But here's the real magic. For both your massive transfusion, but especially these intermediate packs, they need to be sent up in a cooler that will allow them to go back into the blood circulation. And so these intermediate packs for us, we don't have to worry that we're burning these products. They send them up in a cooler. They have the dry ice and stuff in there. And they put an expiration stamp. And as long as we get those products back to the blood bank within, I think it's a four-hour time span, they put them back into circulation. And as a result, I can, on a metastable patient, just always have one of these intermediate packs sitting at their bedside. And if I go through an entire one and they're not looking super sick, I'll just get another one because I'm not losing anything. So all of a sudden, products at the bedside without burning products.
6: That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned FFP. You mentioned plasma a couple of times this is another question that I thought we should get into. We often get asked to give the patient plasma before a procedure. What's the real role there? When, when is your trigger for, I need to do this invasive procedure. I'm going to give this patient plasma for the procedure.
2: Yeah. So there's an amazing site out there called the blood bank guy, Joe Chafin. He's friggin' amazing. And he has an extensive description of all of the studies that go into this, but I'm going to summarize it here. And then if you're interested, uh, perhaps we'll link that in the show notes. Probably we could go even higher than we're used to. You know, 1.7, 1.8 is probably fine. But in most places, I found a happy medium between what the neurosurgeons and the proceduralists want, the IR folks, and what is probably good medicine is 1.5. If you could get them to 1.5, you're probably in the optimal state for reality of evidence-based medicine and what they'll, they'll be willing to tolerate. Places that are telling you you can't do procedures until you're like less than 1.2, that's craziness and very difficult to get there without an insane amount of FFP or burning things like PCC for no reason. 1.5 in every study I have reviewed is an absolutely safe place for pretty much any procedure. So we're talking about the real delicate stuff like going into the brain. So if they're trying to get you to go below that 1.5, it's time to sit down and do a real evidence review now. Where it gets interesting is when you have, for instance, a cirrhotic patient, the INR is not an accurate measure of their bleeding risk. And for procedures like uh, paracentesis, it doesn't really matter what their INR is, especially if you're using ultrasound to make sure you don't hit an artery inadvertently. You don't have to worry about things like INR. We give plasma unnecessarily, and it's not a benign drug in any sense of the imagination. Uh, Plasma is bad. If you need it, you need it. But if you don't, you're really causing the patient, even to the level of mortality-inducing risk. So for delicate procedures, 1.5. For things like paracentesis, really, I don't know if you need to reverse these patients at all unless they're crazy blood dyscrasias. They just did a recent look at, and I'm forgetting the journal, both chest tubes and uh, thoracentesis. And that also seemed like there was no need for reversal for those procedures.
6: Well, that's good. And I think we, we just get a little bit more detailed on, on which ones. We have massive trauma patients who come in. We don't have INRs and we're putting in intros and subclavian vessels without waiting for an INR to come back. We know those patients are coagulopathic. So we're not going to wait for an INR or wait to reverse to get in a line that is a crash line that we must have right away. Paracentesis, you're saying really not necessary either. Aside from the neurosurgical procedures, what else are we talking about here? Lumbar punctures. It sounds like chest tubes are okay.
2: okay. You've picked the proviso to all of this. And it's not that it's untrue in things like lumbar puncture, but we just don't have the real good data for it. I would say they need to be less than 1.5, 1.5 or less for a lumbar puncture. I don't think that's the time to mess around. Even if the numbers turn out to be better, I think you really, really want to be safe in those because it's a high litigation situation. And you want to make sure they're not on a DOAC. And, you know, patients can. The lumbar puncture literature, this was mostly done in PE. seems like low platelets are okay down to very low numbers. But in most places, you're going to need at least 50 grand on your platelets in order to make a lumbar puncture safe. Now, some of the neurosurgeons will even say 100 grand. I think that's over exuberant. At 50 is probably okay. It seems like aspirin is okay. I'd really decide is this necessary right now? If the patient is on aspirin, but it seems like aspirin's okay. But I would, at this stage of the game, for something like lumbar puncture, simply because there are complications that had nothing to do with you, you know, perfect procedure, et cetera, even at like normal INRs, there could be a hematoma there. But if they see they were at 1.7 and you did the lumbar puncture, they're going to blame you and you don't want that.
6: All right. I want to wrap up this discussion of critical care transfusion with one more question that I like to ask everybody because I haven't gotten a good straight answer, which is, in the patient where I'm giving a massive transfusion, when do I supplement calcium?
2: Yeah, well, probably a lot earlier than you were used to. My rule of thumb was every four units, I was giving a gram or equivalent to a gram of calcium chloride. It seems like it might even be less now. There's The recent publications in the Journal of Trauma would say it's somewhere between every two units and four units for a patient you're massively transfusing. And this is the key is If you have a functional liver and the transfusion's going in slowly, even if you got eight units over the course of you know four or five hours, your liver could keep up with the metabolizing of the citrate and the other things that chelate the calcium. But if you're giving them rapid fire, you know one after the other, I would say it's somewhere between every two and four units that you should be supplementing with the equivalent of a gram of calcium chloride. And you might want to just give one up front if the patient's been exsanguinating because the exsanguination itself leads to hypocalcemia, and it's not just the hemodynamics that calcium affects and it does it actually is the clotting itself that is part of your clot formation is having adequate calcium levels so the most current recommendation and this is really expert opinion as opposed to perfect evidence but that when i've spoken to people about this exact topic is in an exsanguinating patient give a gram of calcium chloride up front and then every two to four units of product give an additional gram of calcium chloride or its equivalent
6: Okay, good, hard recommendations. I love that. Summary. Scott, let's summarize all the stuff in here because there's a lot of good stuff, but I just want to hit a couple of the key points. Number one, if your type in screen doesn't pull up any positives for any of these minor antibodies, you don't need a cross match. Number two, on the other hand, if your screen comes up positive for some of these, then you really do want that cross match, especially in the case where you don't think you need to give blood right away, but might need to give blood in the near future. Have a discussion with your blood bank about getting that information. When you send that type in screen, if the patient comes back positive for some of these minor groups, they should be calling you to let you know so you know there might be a little bit of a delay in getting that blood when you actually need it. Send the cross, reserve that blood for the patient. While you're on the phone with your blood bank, talk about this intermediate pack. So you don't want to go massive transfusion. You're not sure the patient's quite there yet, but you want some blood right now. Go with an intermediate pack, two units of RBCs, two units of MFFP. And if you're transfusing those two units quickly, that's an indication that you're going to have to activate your massive transfusion. If you're not doing it so quickly, well, then you might have saved that activation. Maybe you need another unit or two, but you don't necessarily have to waste time and all the resources on that massive transfusion. As far as plasma, if we're looking at one of these more delicate procedures, the neurosurgical intervention, lumbar puncture, we're targeting an INR of 1.5 or less. If we're looking for some of these other procedures that we thought maybe we have to reverse, but we weren't sure. So things like chest tubes or paracentesis, we probably don't need to be that aggressive. And then finally, calcium supplementation. If you are massively transfusing a patient, give them a gram of calcium up front. And then probably every two units, you're going to want to give another gram of calcium to keep ahead of that calcium loss.
2: Fantastic summary, swimming. Absolutely.
8: Rural Medicine Talks.
9: Greetings all. So I'm back and I wanted to present a case that a colleague of mine and I took care of recently together. Well, we sort of shared care over a few days because it really highlighted a particular challenge of rural medicine. Namely, the act of getting a second opinion. So here's the case. This was a 45-year-old male who presented to a rural emergency room. No significant past medical history, no medications, no allergies. And the day before he came to see the doctor at the emergency room, he had slipped on some ice and fallen onto the point of his elbow. He figured it was just a bad bump, so he went home, iced it, and took some over-the-counter NSAIDs. He unfortunately had an awful night with lots of pain in his elbow, and he couldn't really straighten out his arm, so he came to the clinic. A colleague of mine assessed the patient and noted significant tenderness over the elbow region, lots of edema posteriorly, but no break in the skin and totally normal pulses distally. The patient did complain of some numbness in his forearm, but he could certainly move his fingers and the sensation was preserved distally as well. X-ray revealed a slightly displaced fracture of the radial head and what appeared to be a degree of comminution. I say what appeared to be because it was kind of hard to tell if one of the fracture lines went all the way through both cortices. But given the displacement and the position of the fractures, my colleague settled on displaced and comminuted as a description. So she called the orthopedic consultant who was on call for the hospital. As a GP-run hospital in a very remote town, the nearest orthopod is about a thousand kilometers away. But they provide a great service for us, where they can review our x-rays remotely and provide really on-the-spot consultations with us while viewing the films. Depending on the severity of case, they can then accept a medevac, or even arrange follow-up in the ortho clinic in the next one to two days, or outline the treatment plan for those patients who can be managed locally. Sometimes, like anywhere, we have to wait a wee bit to get in touch with them, if they're operating or in the clinic. But generally, they are very available and so open to helping us. The best, of course, is when they teach us something along the way as well, because it helps us to know how they approach common issues and helps us deal with patients in the future and helps them because then we will call them less frequently for the more straightforward cases. So that's how the ortho-consult system works. Well, if that is true, can I just say as an aside, everybody wishes they had your system. Of course, that's awesome. But let's get back to the case and what happened to my colleague. She quickly got in touch with the orthopaedic surgeon and right away the interaction was tense. Oh, that's more like it. Now we're getting to the real world. Thank you. The surgeon seemed to be extremely irritated about getting the call and was rude and dismissive to my colleague in a totally unprofessional manner. This went above being, you know, slightly grumpy. After literally ranting for a few minutes to my colleague... He finally reviewed the x-rays and said that all the patient needed was a splint and a sling for a few days and that the patient needed to start ranging the elbow within 48 to 72 hours. Now, my colleague was very surprised by this as she was sure that perhaps further imaging or examination would be needed and was assuming that this patient would be sent down for follow-up in the next two to three days. In fact, she was so surprised that, much to the apparent disgust of the orthopedic surgeon, she asked him to repeat the plan just to be sure she hadn't misheard it. Now, I was sitting next to her in the emergency room as all this was going on, and we chatted about the orthopod's attitude and what we now both thought seemed like a very odd treatment plan. So we set about doing some quick research and noted that all of our sources really said the same thing. In other words, that referral for a radial head fracture should be done within a few days of injury if it was a modified Mason class 3 or 4 fracture. Quick sidebar here for anyone wondering what the heck a modified Mason classification system means, because I certainly had to look it up as well. Mason 1. Mason 1 refers to non-displaced fractures, and luckily the vast majority of radial head fractures do fall into this class. Mason 2. Mason 2 are those fractures where there is a greater than 2 millimeters of displacement. Mason 3. Mason 3 refers to comminuted fractures. Mason 4. And bringing up the rear, Mason 4, and those are the radial head fractures that occur along with an elbow dislocation. This patient was definitely a mason three from everything that we could see. So now we were kind of worried. Now, my colleague was scheduled to leave town the next day, so we decided that she would apply a splint and sling now, and then I would call back to the referral center the following day, with the hopes of getting a second opinion when a different orthopod was on call. We explained this to the patient, and they were quite calm and satisfied with this plan, so they went home with the understanding that I would call them back the following day after getting that opinion. However, my colleague and I had forgotten to check one key element— we had forgotten to factor in the call schedule before we came up with our plan. It was a four-day holiday-long weekend, and every day when I called for a new consult, locating told me it was the same surgeon on call. Every day for four days. Now, being on call would certainly make anyone grumpy and rude, but when the case was initially discussed with him, it was on the first day of that stretch. Of course, it still doesn't excuse giving out advice that seemed to contradict the evidence and the practice norms, and it certainly doesn't excuse speaking to my colleague that way. but. I really didn't want to re-discuss this case with the same doctor. So I kept at it, to the point where I'm sure the hospital operator thought I was a wee bit nuts. And I also kept calling the patient, checking in on him. He was doing well overall, thankfully. He was still wearing the splint and the sling, as he said it was too painful otherwise, but he was coping okay. He was using less acetaminophen and ibuprofen, and that was certainly reassuring. So finally, on day five of trying, I was put through to a different surgeon. Given the delay between when the film they were viewing was done and when I was calling, I of course had to explain the situation. And initially they were very upset. And I understand that, I really do. But when I explained what treatment plan had been given to us, and knowing that we have no advanced imaging here or access to in-person specialists, the surgeon quickly changed her tone and was very helpful. She advised me to bring the patient back to check if they could pronate and supinate that arm. If they can't, then you're of course worried that the annular ligament is getting hung up on the fracture line or along one of those comminuted pieces. She said that what they do when they feel like maybe the pain is causing the decreased range of motion, then you do a nerve block and reassess. But a nerve block of the entire forearm was not really something I felt comfortable doing. I mean, I would have been fine attempting the block, but given the delay in this patient's care already, and the fact that this would potentially delay him seeing the specialist another day, I decided to defer that approach. I had the patient come back, and I took off the splint. There was some point tenderness over the radial head, but his range of motion was clearly blocked in pronation and supination. And this was a physical blockage. It was a mechanical block. It wasn't related to pain. So he won himself a trip south to see the specialist, where he ultimately underwent a surgery which went very smoothly. And that is really not the key point of this story. It's not of the management of these Mason three fractures. It's really more about the interpersonal relationships, and really to highlight an issue with getting a second opinion. In most single-payer healthcare systems where patients cannot choose which doctor they see, this can certainly be an issue. Resources are tight, and paying two doctors to see the same patient for the same issue isn't always easy to arrange and isn't done lightly. That being said, the few times that I have requested it urgently, the specialists were always accommodating. But here we had a situation where there was simply no second opinion to be had, because there was literally nobody else answering the phone for those four days. This wasn't a case of life or limb, otherwise we would have insisted on a second opinion, or at least a rediscussion immediately. But it highlighted how, when you are in an isolated environment, you were really dependent on the goodwill of those specialists at the other end of the telephone. These are not people that we know personally, usually, so that can make any frustrating, or in this case downright insulting, conversations far more difficult to deal with. Because you don't usually share an in-person relationship with these people in any way. There's no common history. You haven't hung out with them in the staff lounge. When I've worked in bigger centers, it was possible to get sort of unofficial corridor consults as a second opinion, because your specialist friend might walk past and you can simply ask for a moment of their time, just to see how hard you should be pushing on this particular case. If they say, oh, it's no big deal, and they would have managed it the same way, then you're reassured. But if they look alarmed and concerned, then you can go to bat for the patient. This case highlighted so many things for me. Yes, of course we all have bad days, and that can get the better of all of us from time to time. But we need to remember that when a colleague calls us, they aren't doing it to disturb us. They aren't out to annoy us. And this goes both ways, you know, between specialists and emergency room docs. When people call, they're calling about a patient. And that always needs to be the priority. Excellent point, Vanessa. And before
3: we get on our high horse, I've seen people complain about consultants giving them a hard time and being inappropriate. And then those same docs turn around and do it to the paramedics or to do it to transferring docs from outside. I think the simple rule here that is, uh, you know, prevalent throughout most of the world's religions and most philosophical lines of thinking, and that
9: is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're welcome. So what do we do about this if we're in a rural hospital and we can't transfer a patient without the name of an accepting doctor at the other end? How do you get away from a place where you have to call locating every day with your fingers crossed in the hope that a grumpy doc isn't on call? Now, this might sound crazy, but trying to meet the referral center teams is a great way to do it. Socializing with total strangers a thousand kilometers away isn't always an option, but try to reach out in some way. If you have a training in their town at some point, try and organize a meet and greet or a little tour of the emergency room or the departments. It might not be a massive party, but even if just a few people show up and you put faces to names, it's going to help for the relationships. One of my favorite ways to introduce myself to the specialist team actually is when I accompany a patient on a medevac to the referral center. Now, I am a shy introvert, but even I like to sign over the patient and hopefully chat for a minute or two with my receiving colleagues. We are all in this together, so let's treat each other like the team members that we truly are, even if we've never actually met. Ignore the personal slights that you might feel from difficult conversations and deal with them afterwards if it is a pattern for a certain doctor. And remember that the most important person in the equation is the patient, and their well-being. So do everything you can to advocate for them and hope to heck that your colleagues feel the same way.
3: I think this is an excellent piece, Vanessa. Thank you again. i got to say, when I was practicing, I thought that bad interactions with consultants was one of the most stressful parts of the job. I do not like to fight with people. And so when you are made to fight with people, to advocate for patients, it's super stressful. I'm not like Billy Mallon. Billy would get just this energy from fighting with the consultants, but most of us don't. So we want to avoid it. But don't avoid it too much. If you need to advocate for the patient, advocate for the patient. And I like this idea. It's a lot harder for somebody to be inappropriate and weird with you if they know you as a colleague, if you've seen them at other places. It's kind of like YouTube comments. They are the worst because they're completely impersonal. So the more that you can get to know your consultants, the better. In fact, the more you get to know your consultants and you chat and they see that you're smart, it just makes everybody's life a lot better. There are, however, some people in medicine, I don't know if you knew this, that are just not good people, and uh, you just have to find ways to work around those peeps. And sometimes, you just got to move it up the chain, because uh, you can only fight so many battles on a shift. So what are your stories? What do you do when you've got uh, difficult consultants? And do any of you have a system where the phone calls are actually recorded? I was talking to a physician that said... They're having such problems with their consultants that they started recording the calls so that it could all be in the record. And guess what? People's behavior got a lot better. Thanks, Caddy B. Good stuff.
4: Tired of going commando into lawsuits? Stop messing around. Well, it's time to put on some medical legal briefs
10: with Mike Weinstock. Stick around. This is Mike Weinstock for... Medical Legal Briefs, where we use legal outcomes to make patients safer. So we're here at the SUMA Emergency Medicine Residency during morning conference. I'm joined here by Mike Blacci. Mike is core faculty at the Emergency Medicine Residency Program here at SUMA Health in Akron, Ohio. The case. Mike, you have a case, a common complaint in the ED, leg pain, but it turned out to be a diagnosis which wasn't really expected, and then eventually an ensuing legal action.
11: This is a 43-year-old guy who's had three days of flu-like symptoms and leg pain. He had been seen in an urgent care about three days earlier with flu-like symptoms that included some generalized myalgias, but there was no mention of leg pain at that time. The urgent care, he had a negative rapid strep, negative flu screen, but he was diagnosed with an influenza-like illness and started on Tamiflu. After he was discharged, he was bedridden for about the next three days, presented to a small rural ED at about 6 p.m., he was initially seen by a PA at about 8 p.m. and then staffed with the emergency doc. His triage vitals were temperature of 100.4, heart rate of 126, pressure of 104 over 66, respers of 14, and a rumor air pulse ox of 100%. The initial exam by the PA was documented as showing no evidence for trauma, his sensation was intact, he had no edema, was non-tender. She ordered a BMP, which showed a normal potassium, a bicarb, of 23, creatinine at a 1.4, a little elevated. A D-dimer was done because clot was in the differential and that was elevated at 1140. The thought at that point was that the low-grade temperature elevation without any signs of infection, with an elevated D-dimer and being basically bedridden over the last three days, a DVT needed to be excluded and uh, Doppler wasn't available after hours at this facility. So as is typical practice there and in most places, he was given analgesics, given a shot of Lovenox, and then was discharged with a plan to have his Doppler done first thing in the morning. The discharging nurse documented that he was independent and walking
10: with stable gait on the way out,
11: and he went home.
10: So Mike, there's a lot to unpack here. Certainly a differential for patients with leg pain, which oftentimes it's just gonna be something like DVT, and if that's negative, they go home, right? But we also have care between different providers, which always we know is a recipe for some potential problem with that. And then we also have an issue of some of the timeliness of care. Unfortunately, Doppler wasn't available, as it is not in my emergency department and other institutions either. Now, before we even go into some of this, and we're going to do a pretty quick recitation of the differential here, Mike,
11: how do you know about this case? This was my case, Mike. I was a defendant.
10: Wow. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, and and hopefully the consideration of some of the things that you're going to share with us, not only about what was expected (laughs) based on all your training and some of the discussion of medical legal issues, but maybe thought of what would have been done a little bit differently as far as documentation or care, and then also, importantly, the effect that this had on you. So before we get into any of that stuff, why don't we just very briefly, as we do with all of these medical legal briefs, go through a differential... For patients with
11: leg pain in general, maybe not specifically this case, but leg pain in general, DVT was definitely in the differential on this case. SVT or superficial venous thrombosis, superficial thrombophlebitis, we're always going to look for signs of infection, whether that's cellulitis or an abscess or or something worse like a necrotizing soft tissue infection. Muscular cramping could be a possibility, whether that's due to dehydration or whether that's due to an electrolyte abnormality, most commonly being hypokalemia.
10: In the right clinical setting, compartment syndrome could be a arterial thrombus, and hopefully we're going to get in there pretty quickly and have a good amount of information on that. I think it's uncommon, but maybe some obstruction to venous return, such as some pelvic or abdominal mass, you know, chronic venous stasis. and we always sort of make the joke of like, you know, you're not really treating cellulitis in both legs that just happen to come about at the exact same time. So just a brief thought on DVT, a lot of us use the well to look at that, but it's sort of interesting to me when you think about a score of zero, you still have a 5% risk of DVT and a score of one, you have up to a 17% chance of a DVT. So when you think about an acceptable miss rate, and we know like the ASEP. 2018 guidelines for chest pain, they have defined for us an acceptable miss rate of 1% to 2% for patients with chest pain. And with the actual discussion there that trying to get lower than that can cause patient harm, but even a well score is zero if you're thinking of 5%, pretty much we just still need to do that Doppler. But that's exactly what you did. And we really are at the point here of revealing what happened to the patient. DVT was not this patient's diagnosis. Okay, so he was scheduled to come back
11: at 8 a.m. to have his Doppler, but he came back instead at about 5.30 a.m. came in by ambulance with worsening pain that he couldn't manage with the prescribed analgesics at home. So this was still on my night shift uh, prior to my checkout at 7 a.m. At that point his temp was 97.5 pressure 122 over 90 heart rate 124 respirs 18 saturating 96 percent on room air i examined him at about six o'clock and he seemed pretty uncomfortable The exam and triage documented unilateral leg swelling and tenderness this was also what i found on my exam and that was different than what we had on initial presentation there wasn't any erythema or warmth the skin was warm and dry with no rash i gave him a shot at the lauded to make him a little more comfortable while he waited for his doppler and I checked him out to my relieving physician at 7 a.m. That was with the expectation that the Doppler would be done as soon as the tech got there at around 8. So his Doppler was completed right about 8 a.m. and it was negative for DVT. He was still having a lot of pain, so with the working diagnosis of DVT ruled out at that point, symptoms still persisting, maybe getting a little worse, the day shift doc ordered a more extensive workup. There's a long clinical course here, so in the interest of time, I'll just give you a brief summary. He ended up getting a surgical consult from an orthopedic surgeon that was on call and a CT of the leg at around 10 a.m. The CT showed, I'll, I'll quote this from the reading, uh, diffuse subcutaneous and intermuscular fascial edema involving all compartments of the right lower extremity most compatible with myositis. So the surgeon who evaluated him and looked at that CT and looked at that CT reading did not think that there was a surgical cause for his pain. He agreed with the CT diagnosis of myositis. There had been a CK done, that came back pretty significantly elevated. So at that point, the surgeon signed off. A couple hours later, the patient's vital signs began to take a turn for the worse, and about an hour after that, he coded. They were able to get ROSC, but he remained unstable through the rest of the afternoon and the rest of the time that the day shift doc was on. The day shift doc continuously tried to get him transferred to a higher level of care, but he ended up being too unstable to transfer he ended up coding a couple of more times before he was finally accepted and flown to a large university center where he was brought up to the OR. In the operating room, they found signs consistent with necrotizing soft tissue infection. They amputated his leg at the hip. They debrided a large amount of tissue from the right side of his thorax as well because the infection had spread up into his thorax. And unfortunately, he died several hours later in the ICU due to sepsis and multi-organ failure.
10: So, Mike, I mean, this is a super uncommon and unlikely diagnosis here. However, you have told us that you, you know, not only turned the patient over, but your partner then also consulted the surgeon who didn't think this was a necrotizing infection. And then there were some delays. And as we find, oftentimes when there's bad outcomes, there's multiple failures along the way. But in the end, you were sued and you were named as a defendant in this case. Do you remember getting that letter in the mail? 100%.
11: I could still draw the picture in my head. I remember where I was standing in my house, at the kitchen right next to the island, uh, opening it up on the counter, kind of looking over my shoulder to make sure my wife wasn't around. Heart sunk. I never quite had that feeling before.
10: I actually didn't tell my wife about it for a few weeks afterward. This is like a blow, even if we don't feel like we did something wrong. This is like gut shot to the way that we, in a lot of ways, define ourselves. Let's focus on three things here going forward. The first is, I'm really curious, when you look back, is there something that, because of this case, would cause you to manage future cases differently? The second thing is, I'm curious about your documentation and the way that you reflected your encounter with that patient and the handoff, not only from the PA to you, but also from you to the receiving physician in the morning. Is there anything differently that you'd have done with that? And then finally, I'd like to know, what effect did this have on you and how did you get through this? So let's first talk about medically. Is there anything differently that you'd have done or a way that you would change your practice based on what happened? I poured over
11: this case for months, Mike. You know, We talked about it quite a bit. And initially, I just wasn't sure. You know, and I, I thought about it quite a bit. Could I have done something better? Is there anything that I could have done for this guy who's my age, with kids my age and a wife my wife's age? Am I the reason that this guy that I could really relate to is dead? You know, and I poured over that for months. And, you know, really the, the light bulb moment for me was kind of looking at the timeline and realizing that, that when the CT was done, five, six hours after the second time I saw him and, you know, 15, 16 hours after the first time I saw him. And the surgeon evaluated him at that point. It's still at that point, the surgeon that I would have called if I had some, you know, superhuman insight to have this diagnosis made earlier, if he didn't do it at 10 a.m. on day two, he certainly wouldn't have done it at 8 p.m. on day one or at, you know, five or six in the morning on the day of. I was able to come to peace with the fact that there was nothing that I could have done to save this guy's life.
10: Anything you would do differently documentation-wise when you were actually still in the ED and seeing this patient?
11: Yeah, I think there could have been better documentation of the medical decision-making. And that's something we always emphasize you know, with each other and, and with our trainees, that you know, the medical decision-making is one of the most important parts of the chart. But you know, when you're in a busy shift, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily go through and write everything down that you're thinking. And I think that happened in this case. It could have been better. I mean, there was no suspected source of infection, so there was no sepsis. There was also an alternate explanation for his tachycardia and for his pain that was much more likely, that being a DVT. Turned out not to be the case, but at the time of the evaluation, it seemed much more likely. His pain wasn't out of proportion for the suspected diagnosis, a DVT. Now, I was able to get these points across a deposition, but anything that may have made it less likely to ever get to deposition in the first place is something
10: I would have liked to do at the time that
11: I saw the patient.
10: So you went to the deposition. They prepped you for the deposition. And I just wanted to explore a little bit further this thought, and you brought this up a couple of times. This patient was similar age to you and had kids similar age to your own children. How much did your own guilt as far as the outcome factor into how you approach preparing for and then performing the deposition? At the
11: time of the deposition, this thing had been going on for four years already. So I had thought about this case no exaggeration, nearly every day for four years, prayed for this family nearly every day for four years. So as I said before, I felt pretty comfortable by the time I got to the deposition that there was nothing I could have done to prevent this outcome. And I was very secure in that and very confident going into the depot, despite still being just heartbroken for the family, obviously. But, um, that was what was most difficult was really not letting the emotion of it distract me from the fact that when I looked at it critically and looked at it logically, there was really nothing that I could have done to change the outcome. And really more importantly, in terms of the deposition and the legal case, that the standard of care was met at the time that I met him and focusing on that and trying to block out the emotion of it was the most difficult thing in prep and really what my lawyer focused most during the preparation period.
10: So before I ask you to tell me the outcome, whether this went to trial, whether it settled, whether it was dropped, we've all had patients with bad outcomes. Some have just than things that we think about. Some have gone to peer review, some have ended us up maybe in the chairperson's office, and then some have gone to legal action. What are some of the techniques that you used through this years and years process to get through this? I was walking this balance
11: between trying to take care of myself and make sure that I was focused when I went to work every day and focused on you know, being a good husband and a good father and a good mentor and that sort of thing. Also not overburdening the people that I cared about. Like I would give my wife an update every once in a while, but I knew this was going to go on forever. And I knew that she would be really bothered by it if she got every update. So I didn't talk to her every time I got a call from the lawyer. I didn't talk to her every time there was an update. Every once in a while I would, if it was something big or something, I just really couldn't deal with myself and just needed to talk to somebody. I mean, you were a big outlet for me. I spoke to you quite a bit. You know, we were working together through most of this.
10: And for folks who are going through this, we have a new chapter on medical malpractice stress syndrome and corpendium, and it's fine to talk about your feelings. So you can certainly talk with your spouse or friends about your feelings. Of course, the common narrative is not to talk about the specifics of the case, but talking about your feelings going through that is a nice outlet. You know, everybody deals with this differently whether it's exercise or rededication to your patients or time with family but it's a very real thing to think about folks who could have some susceptibility to substance issues, depressive issues and in general people will have difficult time with sleeping and other sort of things. So this is a very real and concerning thing and Mike you went through this whole process, you know, 4 or 5 years. It's an incredible amount of time until we got to a resolution. So in just a second I'm going to ask if any of the residents have any questions for you about going through this process, but what was the outcome?
11: So initially I wanted to fight it. I wanted to go to trial. I wanted to be vindicated. And I also didn't want anything on my record with the National Practitioner Data Bank. But as trial got closer, that really started to change for me. The whole thought process changed. The hospital and the surgeon had settled for a large sum. The the surgeon was an employee of the hospital. So they had a settlement for a lot of money. So it was just us that was left. My defense attorney recommended that I consult with a personal attorney who had some experience in this area, which I did. And I learned a lot about what the NPDB does and doesn't do for insurability. I'd always heard horror stories of people with one entry in the NPDB that couldn't get insured anymore. So you know, I had a clean record, the NPDB. I wanted to keep it that way. I don't want to have to worry about not being able to get insurance. If I can't get insured, I can't practice. What I found out was that's really not the case, that the people that have lost insurability have had multiple, multiple findings in the NPDB. It's a repetitive thing. And there's some nuance to it. It's not just, you know, if you have three citations or you have three settlements or whatever that you're going to not be able to be insured, they look at each one individually and there's, there's the opportunity to put details in there. So if there's a wrongful death suit and, you know, there's a small amount of money, you know, just pick a number. You know, there's a wrongful death suit and you're found to be liable for $100,000 or $200,000 as opposed to one or two or three million that people are going to look at that and say, oh yeah, they just wanted that to go away. I mean, I felt great about what we had going into trial. We had some of the best experts in the world, some of which have appeared on this program that were very strong at their deposition. I felt great about being able to defend that I had met the standard of care and it was nothing I could have done. But it's a very emotional case. I mean, there's a 40-some year old widow. There's two kids that don't have a father. And it's very easy to convince a jury of lay people that someone who's 85 years old died because it was just going to happen. Most lay people don't think 40-year-olds are supposed to die. So the possibility that we lose and then that the verdict goes beyond policy limits and everything that I had worked for for the last 30 years could go down to drain, it's a small possibility. And if I was single, I probably would have gone ahead and fought it. But, you know, I got three kids and a wife to think about. And I just, you know, my wife has suffered through all of this stuff over the last 30 years, you know, hardly seeing me during residency and You know, all the family events that I missed and everything, and she's really looking forward to retirement, and I feel like she's earned it as much as I have. I got three kids I want to put through college. I just didn't think even a small chance of having all that go away was worth it. So by the time we got to the end, I was pushing for a settlement, and I had the personal attorney that I had hired send a hammer letter to the insurance company. A hammer letter is a letter from an attorney that demands a settlement within policy limits, and it sets up the insurance company for a lawsuit from me if the verdict causes me to lose personal assets. I had no idea that this was a thing before I went through this process, and it was something that I learned kind of late in the game. It finally settled about a week before trial for significantly less than policy limits, and then that liability was shared between myself, the company that I was working for at the time, the other
10: physician who cared for the patient, and the APP. As I mentioned earlier, we are recording at the Suma Emergency Medicine Residency during morning conference. Now, we thought we'd open it up to the residents for questions. Anyone have a question they want to ask Mike? My name is Kevin Venzel. I'm a second-year EM resident here at Suma Health. Did this case change the way you document going forward, you know, making sure you talk about no evidence of neck fash? I do think
11: that it made me a little more diligent like we talked about about Documenting medical decision making a little bit better, especially in terms of sepsis, like if they're tachycardic or tachypnic, or if they, you know, if a white count got ordered, which you guys know would usually be over my objections. But if the white count got ordered was elevated and they met SERS criteria, but they didn't have an infection, documenting that there's no sepsis because there's no source of infection suspected. I think that it's human nature that when you something like this happens, you're gonna think about a condition more frequently. And I did find myself thinking about NSTIs more frequently in cases where I might not have thought about it before. You always have to include the worst diagnosis in your differential or else you're not going to diagnose it.
5: Hi, I'm Savannah Chavez. I'm one of the second-year EM residents at the Summa Health. So you spoke a little bit about how this affected you, you know, in your personal life and professional life leading up to the deposition and the settlement. Can you comment on how things have been since it resolved?
11: I still think of the family constantly. Again, I mean, their kids are... Close to my kids' age. So, as my kids are growing up, I still think about them a lot when I'm spending time with my kids, knowing that those kids don't have their father there. And that's a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. It's my fault. I've come to peace with that, but it's still a tragedy, and I feel terrible for it. But when I got word that they had come to a settlement, it was just a massive weight off my shoulders.
0: Hey, how you doing? My name is Mark Swoon. I'm one of the second year residents here at Summa Health Akron, Ohio. So, Dr. Palacci, I knew this was a very difficult case for you. This is a gentleman of similar age. And it had a pretty negative outcome. And I know mental health in the environment that, you know, we're having more and more talks about mental health and seriousness and the increase of physician suicide and trying to find ways to combat that. And I know we mentioned earlier in regards to a successful emergency medicine career is finishing an emergency medicine career on your own terms. What helped you in regards to
6: mental health and being able to push through this difficult situation? I guess I don't know that I really
11: did get over the case to use that term. I, like I said before, I still think about it all the time. But in terms of being able to get through it and, you know, continue to go to work and be focused and all that sort of thing, I think it was partially coming to peace with the fact that there was nothing I was going to be able to do to prevent this outcome. And I think it's partially being able to recognize that I have to be on my A-game every day when I go to work. I'd like to think that I would be able to recognize, you know, if I was about to go into a shift where I wasn't really prepared to give every patient my best, because
10: like I said, we all owe them that. Summary Okay, Mike, so wrap this up.
11: All right, so let's finish with a few take-home points, okay? We'll do one medical and a couple of non-medical. First, I hate this disease. It's incredibly hard to diagnose, especially early on, but if you don't diagnose it early, it's universally fatal. Remember, there's four types of NSTIs, and only two of them produce gas. This patient had type 2. It was a monomicrobial strep A infection, and that's one of the ones that does not produce gas. So the absence of gas on exam, on POCUS, or on CT does not rule out NSTI. Second, know what to expect and know that you have leverage. Even if your contract dictates that the ultimate decision is not yours, you can influence whether the case settles or goes to trial if you want to go a different direction than the insurance company's pushing you. Have your personal attorney draft a hammer letter demanding they do what you want, and then if they don't, it opens them up to liability from you if the outcome is harmful to you. And finally, The decision on whether to settle or go to trial is an incredibly difficult, individualized decision. Don't be pushed into a settlement or into the courtroom, either one, by your pride, by your lawyer, by your co-defendants, by your insurance company, or by anything else. Make your own decision based on your values, your confidence, your priorities, and your risk tolerance. And once you make that decision, be your own advocate.
10: Well, Mike, thanks so much for sharing what is a certainly tough thing here. The care that you gave this patient certainly was focused on, as we always do, a primary thought on a differential. And when that turned out not to be the case, by that time, the patient had been turned over and the eventual diagnosis was found. Although, of course, the outcome were not as much as we would have otherwise desired. And I really appreciate you sharing with this. Thank you to the Summa Health Emergency Medicine Residency for your questions and for being here live during this recording. And Mike, we'll look forward to wrapping with you next time.
6: Back in April, we had Mike Weinstock and Gita Penza discussing a med mal case of a patient with spinal epidural abscess. One of the things, though, that we didn't get as deeply into in that segment is actually making the diagnosis and then the treatment that follows. Fortunately, we've got Britt Long back on to dive into that topic, and he's got a guest, Justin Carlson, the National Education Director for US Acute Care Solutions. And they're gonna go deep into this topic, starting with a case that Britt saw a 45-year-old woman who comes in with back pain, something that, let's be honest, we see almost every day in the emergency department. Long.
12: She was a patient with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis and had chronic back pain that was worsening. She also described subjective fevers and even new paresthesias. Now, that kind of story made me start thinking about some dangerous diseases like spinal epidural abscess, And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's start with the basics. What is a spinal epidural abscess? Spinal epidural
7: abscess is a pyogenic infection of the epidural space, and it often involves several segments, usually about three to five, and is commonly seen in the thoracic and lumbar spine. Unfortunately, it's often missed on the initial emergency department presentation, and usually it takes more than three visits before patients are diagnosed. The morbidity and mortality associated with the disease is pretty significant with about 50% of patients having some residual deficits and outcomes actually are worse the longer and more delayed the presentation is.
12: This is actually one of the scariest things about this disease to me is that we're missing it, but it has a potential for some really severe neurologic and medical issues. I've seen maybe three or four cases of this and Those are the ones I've been able to recognize. How common is this?
7: The numbers quoted in the literature are a little bit challenging to interpret. One of the stats that regularly comes up is about one out of every 10,000 admissions is for spinal epidural abscess. Well, that's helpful on the inpatient side, but for us in the ED, what we really wanna know is of the patients who come in with back pain, how often do they have a spinal epidural abscess? And it's about one in every 350 patients who present to the emergency department with back pain will end up having some spinal pathology that is
12: significant, like a spinal epidural abscess. This right here is one of the major challenges we face with this disease. It's not a common diagnosis, but we're seeing back pain on a very routine basis. I I can't remember the last shift I worked where I didn't see at least one patient with back pain. And back to my patient She had had one prior presentation to another ED where she was just diagnosed with a musculoskeletal cause of her pain. When we're thinking about spinal epidural abscess, what's the underlying pathophysiology and what are the most common causes for the disease? So there's a few different ways that this can develop. One is
7: hematogenous, so spread from some other infectious source. Another is direct extension from an infected contiguous tissue. And finally, there's direct inoculation. Spinal cord damage can occur because of direct compression, but there's also a host of other complications that can happen. There's thrombosis and thrombophobitis of nearby veins. You can have disruption of the arterial supply. You can have bacterial toxins and inflammatory mediators that damage that tissue.
12: What do we need to be on the lookout for when it comes to risk factors for a spinal epidural abscess? One of the big ones is
7: immunocompromised status. So patients with chemotherapy or other conditions that decrease their ability to fight off infections patients with chronic alcohol use patients with a history of diabetes or renal failure such as your patient IV drug use recent spinal surgeries or even recent systemic infections because of the hematogenous spread that can cause spinal epidural abscess those are all significant risk factors to
6: consider those risk factors are really important to take into account because we can't evaluate every patient with back pain for a spinal pathology or a serious spinal pathology And so we focus in on those risk factors to set us off, to make us think about those processes, immunocompromise, ETOH abuse, diabetes, renal failure, IV drug abuse, recent spinal procedures. If you hear back pain along with one of those risk factors, you have got to entertain this diagnosis.
12: Like you said, my patient had multiple risk factors. She had end-stage renal disease. She was receiving recurrent vascular access because of her dialysis. And this is going to increase the risk of bacteremia. My exam was pretty normal in terms of her motor function and she was able to walk, but she did have a lot of pain with ambulation. I remember learning about this classic progression or classic presentation for spinal epidural abscess. What do we need to be looking for when it comes to our evaluation for these patients? Unfortunately,
7: classic is not so classic. The textbook teaching for spinal epidural abscess is a combination of back pain, fever, and neurologic deficits that only occurs in about 15% of cases. So we need to have a heightened awareness to look for this because the majority of cases will not have that classic combination. Patients may have tenderness. They may have urinary symptoms such as incontinence or retention. They may have a combination of
12: neurologic symptoms such as numbness or weakness. Another potential challenge here though is that these patients can present with myalgias, fatigue, You had mentioned the fever. These are very nonspecific and probably another reason why this disease is missed. They sound like flu or COVID-like symptoms. This is one of those times where you need to stop, take 30 seconds, and just think about several dangerous conditions that can present with these symptoms. Things like endocarditis, myocarditis, meningitis, carbon monoxide toxicity, and spinal epidural abscess. And if you're thinking spinal epidural abscess, you need to perform a neurologic exam and then also ask about bowel and bladder incontinence. Justin, once we suspect the disease, what role do labs play? I'm thinking a white blood cell count. And then also, what about inflammatory markers like an ESR or a CRP? Let's start with the first one. Let's start with white blood cell. This is
7: something we're going to get in a number of patients. And unfortunately, it does not have very good test characteristics. Its sensitivity and specificity are not great for spinal epidural abscess, so it's really not a usable tool for ruling in or ruling out the disease. Other inflammatory markers like CRP or ESR are very sensitive, probably about 98 to 99% sensitive for both CRP and ESR. We do, though, have to be careful that we don't order these in all patients because then that we run the risk of having a high false positive rate.
12: How often are we going to see positive
7: blood cultures in these patients? Hematogenous spread is one of the main causes. As a result of that, blood cultures tend to be positive more often than they do in many other infectious processes. And about 60% of patients with spinal epidural abscess will have
12: positive blood cultures. When it comes to imaging, I know x-ray is not gonna help us much here. It has very poor sensitivity for the condition. It may not even show bony changes. So what imaging do you recommend? The ideal test, if you're
7: considering spinal epidural abscess, is an MRI of the entire spine with contrast. It may be tempting to do only the location where the patient has pain, either the thoracic or lumbar region, but really you want to get the entire spine because there are skip lesions. There are instances where patients may have a clear spinal epidural abscess in one region and a developing abscess in another region.
12: How often are these skip lesions going to be present? And also, what factors potentially can increase the risk that a patient develops a skip lesion? About
7: 15% of the time, patients with spinal epidural abscess will have skip lesions, highlighting the need to do whole spine MRI whenever you're considering this diagnosis. A few things do put patients at higher risk of having skip lesions, and those include patients with longer duration of symptoms and those with a higher ESR.
12: Justin, I'm going to burst your bubble here. Many emergency physicians just don't have access to an MRI. It's kind of like that mythical unicorn. But most EDs do have access to a CT scanner. Is CT something we can rely on? CT myelogram actually does have pretty
7: robust test characteristics and potentially similar in diagnostic accuracy to MRI. So if you do need to get a CAT scan because you do not have ability to get an MRI, CT
12: myelogram would be the way to go, although it does
7: risk underestimating the abscess size.
12: We've talked about a variety of labs, we covered blood cultures, imaging with preferably an MRI if it's possible. How do you tie the presentation together with our workup when it comes to labs and imaging? This really comes
7: down to looking at the entire presentation and doing a thorough history and physical exam. So a good neurologic exam is really gonna help tease out individuals who may be at higher risk for spinal epidural abscess. From there, from your history and physical exam, you can develop a pretest probability. Do you think this patient is low risk, somewhere in the middle, or are they high risk? And for individuals who are low risk, who might not have predisposing factors, have no neurologic symptoms, no bowel or bladder symptoms, those individuals may not require any additional testing. Let's go to the other end of the extreme in someone who you have a high pretest probability. Well, that may be an individual who has a motor deficit. And in that case. You go right to MRI. It's the group in the middle where they have some risk factors. You're somewhat concerned. Now, we are not able to do MRIs on everybody, but there are some individuals where we need to sift through a little bit more. And that middle group is the ideal group to do inflammatory markers, of so ESR and CRP, to help determine who may require additional testing, such as an MRI or CT myelogram.
12: How do you decide which patient fits into a specific category? And what I mean is, how do you define a high probability patient versus that moderate or low risk patient?
7: Let's start with the high risk first, because I think that's the easiest one to conceptualize. Those are individuals who present with back pain and acute motor deficits, clear motor deficits on physical exam. In those instances, we would go right to MRI. So next are the moderate risk individuals. Those individuals may have some predisposing factors. They don't have clear motor deficits, but we're concerned that they may still have spinal epidural abscess. All the way on the low-risk side are individuals who do not have any predisposing factors and don't have any other red flags, anything else concerning on our history and physical exam.
12: Let's say I think the diagnosis could be present, or even better, I've confirmed it. What should I be thinking about when it comes to management? The three things that we need to focus
7: on in the emergency department are blood cultures, antibiotics, and source control.
12: This seems simple, but let's walk through this step-by-step. Obviously, we're going to be speaking with our spine specialists. My first question when it comes to management, though, is do all patients need surgery? That's what I typically think of when I have a patient with sepsis and a focal source of infection is source control.
7: While many patients will go to surgery, not all will. So, one of the main indications for surgery is if patients have developing or worsening neurologic deficits. Those may be candidates for decompressive surgery, and they may recover. They have a better chance of recovering. Some of the times where surgery may not be selected, and this is in discussion with our consultants, is if there's already paralysis present. Those may be situations where it is elected to treat the patient with antibiotics alone due to low likelihood of improvement with surgery. But that's a decision we would make with our neurosurgical colleagues.
6: That last point really bears repeating. Just because the patient has a paralysis, just because it's been going on for a while, doesn't mean that we should not consult our spine surgeons, our neurosurgeons. Let them make that decision of whether the patient is appropriate for the operating room or not. Not a place where the emergency physician should make that call.
7: One other alternative to surgery is the potential for CT-guided needle aspiration plus antibiotics. This may be made in consultation with an interventional radiologist, depending on the location and the patient's neurologic symptoms. The other category of patients who may not necessarily go to the operating room are those with a phlegmon. They may not benefit from surgery
12: and may be treated with antibiotics alone. This is an infection, so all patients are going to need antibiotics at some point during the course of their disease. But not all of them are going to be presenting with septic shock. Not all of them will be toxic appearing do we need to give all these patients in the ED antibiotics, no matter their hemodynamic status? And if we do administer antibiotics, what do we need to cover? Yeah, the most common
7: bacteria that we're going to see as a cause of spinal epidural abscess is staph aureus, probably greater than 60% of cases, followed a distant second by gram negative bacilli, strep, coag negative staph, and some others. With that in mind, we want to target our antibiotics towards those bacteria, specifically vancomycin plus a third generation cephalosporin and potentially metronidazole as well.
6: The metronidazole isn't needed in all comers with spinal epidural abscess, but it is recommended in those that have had a recent neurosurgical procedure where we think that that is the source of that spinal epidural abscess. If the patient's stable,
7: we should obtain cultures, consult our specialists, And discuss with them whether or not the patient is a candidate for operative intervention. If the patient's unstable, we would treat as other unstable patients with an infectious source. We would get blood cultures, give antibiotics, fluids, pressors, and also engage our specialists to discuss additional options of care. Summary
12: First, spinal epidural abscess is a pyogenic infection of the epidural space that typically involves three to five segments. It unfortunately presents with very nonspecific symptoms. Less than 15% of patients are going to have that classic triad of back pain, fever, and the neurologic deficit. Risk factors all come back to the underlying causes. Keep in mind immunocompromise, alcohol use, diabetes, renal and liver failure, IV drug use, and then also recent spinal instrumentation. Your history and exam are essential. They can help you form pretest probability and then determine your next steps. Diagnosis primarily focuses on MRI of the whole spine because of those skip lesions, as well as blood cultures. Finally, treatment includes spine consultation for potential surgery, as well as antibiotics. That brings us to what happened with my patient. Well, I didn't have an MRI at my center, and her inflammatory markers were extremely elevated. I discussed the case with the neurosurgeon who was on call, and he recommended that I transfer the patient to an MRI-capable center. I obtained blood cultures, transferred the patient, and MRI unfortunately demonstrated an abscess spanning three different vertebral bodies. She went to surgery and fortunately, she was able to walk out of the hospital with no residual neurologic deficits. Justin, thanks again for going through this with us. I think this gives us a better idea of when we need to think about spinal epidural abscess and it also gives us an approach. Great. Thank
7: you very much.
13: When we're treating pain in our pediatric patients, we think a lot about the medication of choice. But another very important question is the route. The route of medication administration has a big impact on the child, and not just in terms of the effectiveness of the medication, but in regard to their experience. They're probably already scared if they're coming to the emergency department, so coming at them with a needle is only going to make that worse. Not just the visit today, but probably a lot of healthcare visits in the future. So today we have Jason Woods interviewing an expert on the use of intranasal medications in pediatric emergency medicine.
14: Jason Woods My name is Daniel C. I'm one of the pediatric emergency medicine attendings at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital in New York at Columbia University Medical Center.
15: Dan he'll be a little bit modest through this entire discussion as he always is, but but is uh you know has published and and does a lot of work around the approach to pediatric analgesia and sedation in the ED. And that, that is both with medicines and, and non-pharmacological methods. And today's topic is going to be intranasal meds. They're, they're not necessarily a new thing, but I do think they haven't been as widely adopted as some of us would like. And in a, in an institution like mine, I use them quite frequently, but some others are not as comfortable with them. And so we wanted to give an overview of why even think about the intranasal route in the first place. We'll talk about some medicines and some ways to make things go better and some places where sometimes they they go wrong. So I guess first, why would we even consider using the intranasal route in kids?
14: So I think the intranasal route is fantastic and almost created and just ideal for kids. It has lots of advantages and the advantages really come out when you compare them to what the alternatives are right now. When you Think about how we give medications to kids. It's going to be oral medications, intravenous, intramuscular, and of course, sometimes you can give rectal medications when needed. But the intranasal route definitely poses a lot of advantages over these ones. You know, when you give something by the intranasal route, it's what I like to emphasize as a needle free route of administration. It doesn't require the painful stick that an intravenous needle requires, an intramuscular injection requires and it also has an advantage of much better bioavailability and uh, time to onset compared to the oral administration medications particularly because it bypasses first pass metabolism and it utilizes the what I've read as the um, highway to the brain you know I, th- <laughs> I I think what's gets overlooked a lot is the fact that when you squirt something up the nose it gets taken up very quickly systemically through the highly vascularized, you know, respiratory region inside your nasal cavity. But what I think is even more impressive is this olfactory region that just sort of sits right at the top of your nose. And it's literally a highway from the outside into your brain to get all that good medication, which you just can't get through the IV route, the IM route, the oral route, or even the buccal route. The buccal route has very good absorption as well too, but you don't have any nerves sitting inside your mouth that takes it straight to the brain the same way an intranasal medication would.
15: Before we get into sort of the nitty gritty specifics of meds and when they can be used, let's talk a little bit about what you actually need to be able to provide a medicine via the intranasal route. So first up, the medication, what formulation is it in? Do you typically just use the IV formulation? Is there specific intranasal formulations that we need to be asking our our pharmacies to stock?
14: So that's a great question. And when you look out there, there's definitely a lot of proprietary formulations of medications that are to be given intranasally, but if you look back at the history of intranasal medications and how it's been given, we've just been using the intravenous formulations that are already there. If you want people to use it, it has to be readily accessible. It has to be something that anyone can do, and we all have access to the intravenous forms of medications like fentanyl, Versed and so forth. So that's why if you wanted to give something intranasally, as long as you have the IV formulation, you will be able to do it. The other thing that you need is just some sort of delivery system. And you know, there's going to be a lot of variation with that. At the very basic level, you just need a syringe. (laughs) You need something to put the medication in, to drip it in the nose, because although the standards, so to speak, nowadays, is to give an intranasal medication using an atomizer of some sort, which actually is very good and has lots of advantages. Even if you didn't have an atomizer, you can drip medications straight into the nose to give something intranasally. And that's really how things were done primarily before the advent of the atomizer that we all see quite frequently now in the emergency departments. But at the same time, the reason why the atomizer has become so popular is because it takes that big droplet, which is not optimally absorbed and atomizes in these tiny, tiny, tiny little particles, which are much more readily absorbed in the nasal mucosa.
15: So the atomizer is the little device that goes on the end of a syringe and it kind of looks like the top of a of a mushroom. And it it works incredibly well and I like it because it's also pretty soft and it lessens the concerns I have about like am I going to scratch the nose or cause some sort of trauma. And if you don't have one, you you can sort of make an equivalent by by sticking an angiocath on the end of a syringe and pushing real hard or or just dripping into the nose. So it is a low-tech way to get medicines into a patient, in particular if you can't or don't have the capacity to actually get something in IV. I think you and I have both heard people say, well, these intranasal medicines just don't work, or I tried it once and it didn't seem to have an effect and I don't want to do it again. So do you have a sense of when things go wrong or you know what are the reasons people are having troubles where they say that intranasal medicines
14: don't work? When you talk to people, there's a couple of things that I find are reasons why they find it might not work? The first one is how they're administering it. Even with an atomizer, a lot of people don't really think much about how you give it, but there actually is some important technique to the way you position it and how you give it. For instance, if you think about taking a syringe with an atomizer on top and positioning in the nose, the first instinct people have is just to point it straight up. But if you sort of you know turn around and look at yourself in the mirror right now, you can see that the part of your nose that sticks out, is really the vestibule. And inside the vestibule, there really is very, very minimal absorptive capacity, you know, none, I would say at all. But if you're taking an atomizer and you're just sticking it straight up, and most of it is just going to hit the vestibule, it's either going to drip right out and really none of it is going to get absorbed. So that's the first thing, people really have to be conscientious about how they direct the atomizer, how they position it. If you go through some of the old literature, a lot of people used to say that when you stick the atomizer in someone's nose, you have to point it towards the ipsilateral eye. So that means if you take the atomizer, you're sticking it in the right nostril, then you're actually supposed to tilt it so that it's pointing towards the right eye. And the reason for that in the past was people were thinking that you want to optimize absorption through the turbinates and all of the vascularity in there. But in one of our studies, we actually were thinking, you know what, that's great. But what about that olfactory region that we keep talking about? You know, where the nerves, like that highway to the brain, because that doesn't sit off the side. That really sits... Although it sort of covers uh, the roof, it also really is towards the top. So in one of our studies, you know, it's not really highlighted, but if you sort of dig back in the supplemental data, we actually outline our technique. And our technique for that was actually not to deviate to the adderal eye, but just to have it go straight up and have it aim towards your ospite, just really like towards the back. Because when you do that, you kind of get that angle and you also make sure you're not just shooting it straight up to the vestibule and you get towards the back. And using that technique, we were able to show very good outcomes in terms of time to onset and adequacy of sedation. So that's one of the things. Number one is that you really need to make sure that your technique is a- accurate, that you're in servicing people and teaching people because it's something people take for granted. I would say when they're first starting to use intranasal medications.
15: Yeah, and and most of the nasal pharynx goes posterior rather than superior, and I think we sometimes forget that until you go to do like a COVID nasal swab, and that swab <laughs> disappears like four feet directly posterior.
14: In terms of other reasons why people might not be so happy with their experience in intranasal medications, it actually, also has to do with dosing. The medication that I hear people complain the most about is intranasal versed intranasal medazlam, and saying that doesn't work very well. But when you start asking them about the actual dosing that they're using, it's actually on the lower side. You know, there's a lot of variation in what's been reported in the literature, ranging anywhere from. milligrams per kilo up to 0.5 or even 0.6 milligrams per kilo. But you have to recognize that the purposes or the intent for some of those lower doses were not necessarily for the same things we want to achieve in the emergency department setting, right? You know, There's a lot of literature in the anesthesia world where they're just giving it as a pre-medication to calm kids down, get them calm enough to bring them into the OR. But for us, we do need to achieve different goals with that There's actually some very early data back in 1992, where it shows that doses as low as 0.2, 0.3 show that maybe only about 30% of kids get adequate sedation, whereas your chance of success actually jumps up to like 80 to 100% when you use higher doses around 0.3, 0.4, 0.5.
13: Remember that the IV formulation is the exact same one that we can use for the intranasal route. So there's nothing special about it. You probably already have all of these on hand, but in general, You want to have enough of a concentration so that you're not having to administer too much volume. Remember that the maximum amount of volume that you want to give in each nostril is one ml. And that's actually kind of a lot, and it's sort of pushing it. It tends to sort of just drip out down their face when you get that high. So lower volumes are preferable. Nasal mucosal atomizers on the end of a syringe are the best way to go by far. If you don't have them, you can slowly drip it in the nose. I haven't done this, I like the nasal mucosal atomizer. It's uh, pretty available and it's not too expensive. Where you aim the atomizer matters. If you just shoot it into the vestibule, which is the squishy soft part of the nostril, not much is gonna happen. You don't get a lot of absorption there. So they actually recommend either aiming it towards the ipsilateral eye or Dan describes aiming it towards the occiput. Finally, Jason and Dan emphasize the dose, especially with midazolam. That's the one where misdosing is very, very common. So you're going to hear this multiple times throughout this segment. In fact, I'm going to quiz you on it later on the dose of intranasal midazolam, which is, they recommend 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. That's going to increase your chance of success. Again, just be mindful of the volume. Now let's hear some discussion on common pitfalls.
15: In many of the articles or, or papers about when you can use intranasal medications, one of the things in there as a relative contraindication is significant nasal secretions. Is that true? Does that block the absorption? If we've got, you know, your winter time and every kid's got a snotty nose, does that mean that like for six months of the year, we can't use intranasal medications?
14: So that's a great point. And it's true because mucus is a barrier and it's there to keep things out. And unfortunately, medications is one of those things. Well, thankfully, the remedy to that is lo-fi and easily implementable. And you just get the kid to blow their nose. You know? <laughs> you know, they blow their nose, they get the snot out, and then you squirt it in. And that's what we typically do. And it turns to work quite nicely.
15: Oh, I love that. Great. So the answer is, no, you should be able to use it. You just got to get the nose cleared out. Dan, any other reasons why people say that medications don't work or won't work? You know, We, we talked about dosing and technique. Anything else?
14: There's one more thing I would say, and this pertains particularly to intranasal midazolam. What happens is when people give intranasal sedatives, they tend to have certain expectations. They either think it's going to work just like IV, or they think it's going to work just like PO when neither is true. So for people who give intranesal verset, expecting it to work like intravenous verset, they tend to start the procedure too soon. You know, a lot of times you push IV and you start to see the effects quite quickly, but if you don't wait for the intranasal midazaline to kick in, then you're not going to see good effects. For instance, you know, in, in previous works, we've shown that onset of minimal sedation takes anywhere between three to five minutes. But in fact, there's both clinical and PK data to show that the peak effects actually don't kick in until about 10 minutes. So if you're in this situation where you squirt in your intranasal versa and then you start to work on this kid within a minute or two, of course, you're not going to think it's going to work because not only have you not waited until Mental sedation is kicked in, but you also are nowhere near the peak effect that you can get with it. So that's another thing I would say is that you have to really understand the pharmacokinetics of the different intranasal medications you're giving, and time the start of your procedures accordingly. Otherwise, you're going to be doing either too soon, too late, and not really getting the best effect of the medication that you're given.
13: Snot. Not only is it gross, but it blocks absorption of medications intranasally. Fortunately, there is a cheap and easy solution to this. Have the kid blow her nose. That is if she's old enough that she can blow her nose. The next point they bring up is timing. Timing is key.
4: What's the key to intranasal?
13: <clears throat> That's how the joke goes, right? Hate that. Joking aside, timing is really key when it comes to intranasal medazolam. It's going to take 3 to 5 minutes before it has any effect at all, so you have to plan your time accordingly. One other use of intranasal medication, which I am personally a pretty big fan of, is getting the patient calm and comfortable in order to then establish IV access.
15: We use them a lot for you have a a clearly broken forearm fracture. And that kid is eventually going to have to have IV access and probably going to get procedural sedation. but, But they're in extreme pain right now. And I would like to get them relief before I need to move them for an x-ray or before I need to kind of hold them still for an IV. And and so even if they're going to eventually need one, the timing is a big reason why this is useful as an early adjunct to whatever else you're going to do.
14: Absolutely. I agree. And again, it's something that you're likely going to be able to get in faster than having someone set up for an IV and then draw the medications at that point. So what you've described is definitely something that I know that we do and other people do as well. And I'm sure the kids appreciate as they're Heading into X-ray for their films because you know what that Motrin or Tylenol that you're giving a triage is probably not going to cut it and may not even kick in by then. So the intranasal fentanyl, to your point, is definitely you know a good option.
15: Give me your you know one minute elevator speech for why people should consider the use of intranasal medications.
14: You know I always say, and it goes back to my whole perspective about managing pain in kids, and that is kids remember. They're going to remember the painful things that happened to them and getting an IV stick, getting an intramuscular stick, getting something done to them before they have adequate analgesia are all things that they're going to remember. And implementing the intranasal route of administering analgesics or sedatives is really going to help address all of those things. But again, remembering that you have to make sure you're giving it the right way, you're giving the right dose and that you understand the pharmacokinetics and the timing of the medication that you're using.
13: Now that we've talked about some of the general concepts, let's get into some specific medications.
15: Fentanyl. Is there anything that we need to be aware of with fentanyl in the intranasal route that you don't have to be worried about or or that is different from the IV route?
14: So intranasal fentanyl is a great example of something that can be given safely, something that's been shown to be very effective and actually has made its way into quite a few emergency departments because of all of its advantages. You know, a lot of the great work that started all of this was done by by Meredith Borland in Australia. And over the years, it's been shown in lots of other studies to work very well when you dose between 1.5 to 2 mics per kilo. Um, At our institution, we just use 2 mics per kilo and we typically max at about 100 mics. Although for patients who may be opioid tolerant, you could max set about 200 mics as a total dose. You know, the one thing people always worry about with fentanyl in general is always about the whole issue with rigid chest when you're pushing it too fast with IV. But to date, actually, it hasn't been reported with intranasal fentanyl. Granted, intranasal fentanyl hasn't been given for as long as IV fentanyl and, you know, rigid chest is something that's quite rare. But some of the hypotheses out there is that because when you give something intranasally, the absorption systemically is sort of buffered in a way, and is not just going to be as fast as an IV push. And that's one of the reasons why people think that there's going to be a lower chance of rigid chest, but um, that's just a hypothesis at this point.
15: This is not a, a formal recommendation, but I will tell you that my personal practice is I order two per kilo, but I tend to round up relatively generously. Uh, Because there's a lot of people that want to order one per kilo, you know, maybe like they would if they were doing an IV dosing, and and I just I don't think that's ever enough analgesia to get you what you want.
14: Absolutely, and that's the other thing too. You know, they've got a lot of good studies looking at the bioavailability of intranasal medications, and although it varies, usually what you can say is that the bioavailability tends to be around maybe half, sixty percent of IV, which is why. When you look at the dosing for a lot of these intranasal medications, they tend to be approximately twice what the IV dose usually is.
2: Midazolam. Let's
14: move on to
15: midazolam. And what do you recommend as far as dosing? And and are there any tricks or things that we should be aware of as far as optimal use of it?
14: So intranasal midazolam, definitely the best studied anxiolytic in the emergency department for kids. You know, as we referred to earlier on, dosing is so key. And one of the things I tell people is that friends don't let friends use less than 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams per kilo, you know? (laughs) You know, granted, this is my personal opinion.
15: Oh, this makes me so happy.
14: But in terms of a recommendation, that's what we say. And we've had very good success with that in terms of both it being effective, but it's also safe, you know, over the many years that we've been using it in our own emergency department.
13: Once again, underdosing of midazolam is a setup for failure. What is that dose that we should be giving for intranasal midazolam? 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. That's where it's more likely to be effective and more likely for you to have success. Just be mindful again of the volume administered. The absolute max, one ml per nostril, which is quite a bit. At that point, actually with one ml, it's usually dripping down their face. So lower volumes are even better. Now there's one other common complaint about intranasal midazolam, it burns.
14: There's definitely literature out there looking at using lidocaine to help reduce the burning. You know, so different things have been described. You know, there's a nice study where they showed that the pre-administration of lidocaine, meaning you squirt the lidocaine in the nose first, helps to decrease the pain. And there's also some work out there looking at giving it co-administered, meaning that you take the lidocaine, you mix it up with the versate, and then you squirt them at the same time together. So uh, definitely there are options for how to decrease it using lidocaine. And those are two of them.
15: My experience with it has been that if you use the appropriate dosing, you know, they pretty quickly quit caring about the burning in their nose. And <laughs> it's only an issue if you underdose them and don't actually get them anxiolysis. So mm-hmm. yeah, th- this is the one that we, we use the most. And and you brought up a point about the the length of time. And this is really meaningful, especially in a, if you're deciding for the right procedure, and you are also in a teaching institution where if you are working with somebody who might be a little bit slower, you, you probably have to have that discussion up front, sort of, how much time do we have to complete this procedure? And if they're not getting it done quick enough, that may change either your plan or how much of it you would let a, a trainee do or somebody who wasn't quite as fast as you.
13: So once again, for Midazolam, that onset of action is about three to five minutes, peaks around 10 minutes, and duration is about 20 minutes. They also mentioned that paradoxical reactions are uncommon in general and don't appear to be any more common just because you're giving the midazolam intranasally.
15: Ketamine. All right. So we've done fentanyl, we've done midazolam. Let's talk a little bit about ketamine intranasally.
14: Uh, intranasal ketamine. <laughs> so much to say. So you know, ketamine is one of those drugs where it's really having its heyday. And in the context of the emergency department, there really are two very helpful, or there's really two useful ways to give it. One is for analgesia and one is for procedural sedation. The first one I'll talk about really is for analgesia. And there really have been some great studies done recently looking at using intranasal ketamine for pain control, uh, particularly comparing it to intranasal fentanyl, which really is the standard bearer. Doses that they've been using range anywhere from one milligram per kilo to 1.5 milligram per kilo. And so far, it's been shown to have you know, good analgesia up to an hour after it's been given and analgesia that's even non-inferior to intranasal fentanyl so definitely some advantages but one of the things i will say though is that when you look across the board (laughs) intranasal ketamine is always associated with more minor adverse events you know like we don't have people who stop breathing we're not having people who are having serious adverse events but there's always like a little bit more of something that happens with kids who get intranasal ketamine so that's something to really think about in terms of balancing whether you want to give intranasal fentanyl or if you want to give intranasal ketamine but At the end of the day, you have to remember that both of them are short-acting and that irrespective of whether you're giving the intranasal fentanyl or ketamine, you have to remember that you have to follow that up with something longer-acting.
13: One of the hesitancies about ketamine intranasally for sedation is the duration of the effect. Is it going to last long enough for what you need to do? And then the other hesitancy is the adverse effect profile. So Dan mentions a recent study. It's actually the Pitchfork trial. And in that trial, they compared intranasal ketamine to intranasal fentanyl for analgesia, not sedation, for analgesia. And they noted that they were fairly equivalent for pain control. But the ketamine group had more adverse effects. And the ones that I saw that were mainly described were dizziness, hallucinations, and nausea. Those are fairly significant. That sounds pretty adverse to me. Summary: Intranasal medications, especially for pain control, are great options in pediatric patients with a few key points to be aware of. First of all, order an appropriate dose. I said I was gonna quiz you on it. Here is your quiz. What is the intranasal dose for midazolam? I'm
4: not gonna fall for it, you're just gonna cook You're right.
13: Up. If you said 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, and then being mindful of the volume and usually splitting that total volume between each nostril. Now, your next quiz question. Where do you aim the atomizer?
4: At the octopus.
13: So they said to aim it either towards the ipsilateral eye or towards the occiput. Another cool tip is to consider pre-treating with atomized lidocaine. In this segment, they didn't actually say a specific dose, but I looked up a recently published article where they used 0.5 mLs of a 4% lidocaine solution. So that's 0.25 mL per nostril, and it was a total dose of 20 milligrams. Then they waited five minutes before administering the midazolam. So this was actually a randomized control trial. We linked to it in the show notes and they compared pretreatment with lidocaine versus placebo and they found that the lidocaine group experienced less discomfort. Finally, when it comes to intranasal ketamine for sedation, there were multiple questions raised and it sounds like neither Dan nor Jason are doing this in isolation. Perhaps intranasal ketamine or fentanyl are good options to get pain under control and establish an IV. But when it comes to sedation, think at this point, let's say we're looking forward to hearing more from Jason and Dan about this in the future.
1: All right. My name is Britt Guest, and we are here with Dr. Sawyer. He is a third-year UCLA emergency medicine resident, and he has a pretty crazy dialysis case to share with us. So let's hear what you got.
16: All right. Thanks, Britt. Let's start with the pre-hospital report. So I had this case about a year ago. And this is a 60-something-year-old male who's being brought in from a dialysis center after a ROSC. Patients reportedly got a GCS of three. He's currently being ventilated via bag valve mask. And his heart rate's in the 90s. His systolic blood pressure is 70s. So Britt, what's going through your mind with this call? And do you have any initial thoughts on a differential for this patient?
1: I'm thinking this patient is sick for sure. I think my differential's pretty broad at this point. I mean, it's a dialysis patient. So we've got to think about hyperkalemia, you know, they probably have a slew of other medical problems. So I'm thinking STEMI, kind of ACS is on my differential. And because it's a dialysis patient, you know, they could have cardiac tamponade. With a GCS of three, I'm also thinking, is there something intracranial going on? But I really want to know, what does that EKG look like? Am I seeing peak T waves? Am I seeing a STEMI? What does that look like?
16: So there's no field EKG and the ETA is three minutes.
1: Okay. So I think at this point, really, regardless of your differential, you've got a really sick patient and you've got to focus on the initial basic resuscitation, going through your airway breathing and circulation, and getting this patient stabilized right when they get to the trauma bay.
16: That's exactly what we did. So prior to arrival, we're preparing airway equipment, medications, setting up a monitor, and getting ready to get access on this patient. So then they arrive, and EMS gives you a little bit more detailed report. And what you hear is that the patient was receiving their routine dialysis while seated and was witnessed to suddenly lose consciousness. The dialysis center staff performed CPR and called EMS. And when EMS arrived, he actually had pulses again. So as I recall, this patient didn't receive any epinephrine or defibrillation before coming to the hospital. And on arrival, his vital signs are actually somewhat better than advertised. So his heart rate is right at 100. His systolic blood pressure is 110. His oxygen saturation is 94%, but that's with a bag valve mask, and he has absolutely no respiratory effort. His GCS actually is 3. So as in all resuscitations, a lot of things are happening simultaneously. But what stands out to me is that we take a quick look and are able to easily intubate the patient without any medications.
1: Okay, so you've got a somewhat hemodynamically stable patient in terms of his blood pressure, airways secured, But Dr. Sawyer, I really want to see that EKG. What does the EKG look like?
16: So the EKG that we got shows a narrow complex tachycardia. There are no discernible P waves. And there's a nonspecific intraventricular conduction delay. And there are diffuse ST depressions, V3 through V6.
1: Okay, so it sounds like this is definitely not a normal EKG, but I'm not getting the sense that it meets STEMI criteria. Did you happen to talk about it with cardiology?
16: We do eventually discuss this case with cardiology, and the conclusion that we come to is that, yeah, this could represent ischemia, but before we're going to take the patient to the cath lab, we're going to get a head CT because something's not fitting. And then we're also going to send off lights in other basic labs because this EKG could still represent hyperkalemia with the absent P waves.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, we're all waiting for those electrolytes to come back. But I also remember you said you intubated this patient without paralytics. Now, at this point, when you're kind of able to go back and do a good secondary assessment, are you able to get any additional neurological exam on this patient that could, you know, let us know, did they have a stroke? Did they have a bleed? Are they having a deficit? Or are they just GCS3?
16: Right. So unfortunately, this patient is actually doing nothing. He's not responding to any stimuli. He's not moaning. He's not posturing. He has no gag reflex. And he's not breathing. And that's the part that really doesn't fit with his good hemodynamics. Or relatively good hemodynamics. So with this story, we're concerned again, yeah, this could be ischemia. Yeah, this could be hyperkalemia or some other cause of arrest, but a neurologic catastrophe is now highest on our differential. And so we take the patient to CT scan, actually go with the patient. And in the scanner, I'm expecting to see a large bleed, but I don't see that in the scanner. But when I come back to the packs and review the images with my attending, there is subarachnoid and intraparenchymal error, largely in a posterior circulation distribution. It's actually quite profound.
1: I'm sorry, you said air?
16: Yes, I said air.
1: (laughs) So air is definitely not what I was expecting you to say. That wasn't the first thing I would be looking for on a CT scan. So Dr. Sawyer, how the heck did air get there?
16: So this is a case of cerebral air embolism. And outside of diving emergencies, the cause is usually going to be iatrogenic. And it actually is a known but exceedingly rare acute complication of dialysis that I found quoted as less than one case per 30,000 dialysis sessions. It's pretty rare because there's air detectors and dialysis machines that keep the incidence low. This is probably the only case I'll see in my career.
1: Man, I hope so. I mean, so in terms of the air, though, like how does it actually get up to the brain in these patients?
16: It's hard to know in terms of an individual case, but this patient was seated. And the traditional teaching on this is that in the seated position, the patient will either seize or lose consciousness because the air floats up into their cerebral venous circulation. On the other hand, if the patient is supine when this happens, then the air travels to the heart and lungs, and you expect chest pain and dyspnea.
1: Okay, but that's with the venous circulation, and you said this patient has air in in arterial distribution, right?
16: Yes. So what's interesting in this case is that the air is subarachnoid, intraparenchymal, and kind of in a single arterial distribution. So Apparently, the air crossed into the arterial circulation. This can happen as well. So there's a few possibilities. One is the air enters directly into the arterial system, and in this patient, it would probably be through the AV fistula up the arterial limb, and maybe that's possible in a low-pressure scenario such as dialysis. The other possibility is that if the patient happens to have an atrial septal defect or other type of cardiac or pulmonary shunt, they can have a paradoxical embolus. And finally, and this one actually surprised me a bit, but a large air embolus can be incompletely filtered by the pulmonary capillaries and cross to the arterial side.
1: Now that is actually shocking to me, that air can cross the pulmonary circulation and go into the arterial circulation. Okay, but tell me, what are we actually going to do about this air embolism?
16: So I think the first thing we need to highlight is prevention. There are cases of this happening with something as simple as peripheral IV access, but the really high-risk scenarios involve, for us, central line insertion and removal, maybe dialysis, and then other surgical procedures. So things that we learn to do, like using occlusive dressings when removing central lines, positioning the patient appropriately for central line removal and having them valsalva if possible, flushing central lines before insertion, appropriately priming your dialysis machine or blood tubing and ensuring that all your little vascular connections are clamped down or capped appropriately. These are things we maybe learn a little bit of as medical students, but the importance of these things is highlighted in a case like this.
1: Yeah, okay, so prevention for sure. But if you're suspecting an air embolism, you should probably review the possible sites that the air is entering and keep the air from coming into circulation.
16: Exactly. So review whatever it is that you're doing. Clamp the tubing if it's dialysis tubing with a bunch of air in it, or apply an occlusive dressing if it was after an essential line removal, and overall try to prevent more air from entering the circulation.
1: All right, so again, other than prevention, which is really key, what do we actually do for this patient?
16: So just like in cases of pneumothorax, we can easily apply 100% oxygen. Room air's nitrogen content, as we know, is 78%, and that's the same content that's in the air embolism as well. So with 100% oxygen, you can establish a gradient to wash out the nitrogen more quickly.
1: Okay, so applying oxygen, that sounds like a pretty easy intervention. Is there anything else we can do in terms of positioning this patient to move the air?
16: Have you heard of Durant's maneuver?
1: <laughs> I sure haven't.
16: I hadn't either. But this is positioning the patient in a left lateral recumbent position. And the goal is to move the air into the apex of the right ventricle or keep it in the right atrium and prevent right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. But this was actually studied in the 1980s in canine models versus keeping the patient in a supine position, and there wasn't any evidence of benefit to Durant's maneuver over keeping the patient supine. So I think it's probably more important to prioritize your supportive care measures over moving the patient into this particular position.
1: I do think it's worth considering what position the patient was in when the air embolism actually occurred. So if there is a central line removal or insertion, keeping the heart elevated above the site of entry could keep hydrostatic pressure on your side and prevent air from entering more easily.
16: I agree. And actually, so does the anesthesiology literature that I found on this for managing it in the OR. So wherever you think the air was entering, try to tilt the patient uh, with their heart above that site of entry.
1: So is there anything else interesting you came across in your literature review?
16: Yes. So what do you think about placing a central line to try to remove the air?
1: No, I think that I, that sounds terrifying. It sounds heroic. Uh, Does it work?
16: So when looking for this, you keep coming across a case report from the 1950s where they aspirated approximately 15 cc's of air from the right ventricle, and then they saw prompt hemodynamic improvement. And there are other case reports of this. The best success rate is with a specific brand of multi-orifice catheter that I haven't heard of and that I doubt is going to be available in any ED I ever work in. So I love procedures, but I'd be very reluctant to try this, and there is no strong evidence to support it.
1: I totally agree with you. I would be a little terrified to do that. But you know what I wouldn't be terrified to do? Hyperbarics. What about hyperbarics for air embolisms like we see with diving emergencies?
16: So we did talk about that in this case. So for hyperbarics, the goal is the same as applying 100% non-rebreather. You're trying to wash out the nitrogen, and then you get the added benefit of increased atmospheric pressure, shrinking the size of these bubbles down. There is a retrospective study of hyperbaric oxygen patients, and there was benefit if hyperbaric oxygen could be started within six hours. But interestingly, and relevant in this particular case, this benefit didn't seem to exist for the arterial embolism group. So our center We didn't have hyperbaric oxygen immediately available, and so we had a discussion with the family about his overall goals of care. Ultimately, we decided not to escalate care further, and I think that was the right decision in the end. I vividly remember an air bubble sitting right in the parenchyma of the brainstem, which correlates well with his neurologic exam. And we also had a CTA that we got at the request of a consultant within one to two hours of his arrival in the emergency department, And already you could see large areas of evolving infarct. Summary.
1: This sounds like a really challenging case, but a really great learning experience. And I think a lot of takeaway points here. What are some of the things that you took away from this case?
16: So, yeah, this was a very sad but very interesting case. My first takeaway was to consider some of the causes of chest pain, dyspnea, syncope, or other neurologic dysfunction that are unique to dialysis. These patients are, of course, high risk for acute coronary syndrome, but there are other unique diagnoses to consider, which include things like dialysis disequilibrium syndrome, hemolysis, maybe they have a pericardial effusion that becomes symptomatic tamponade during dialysis, and then this diagnosis of air embolism. We see tons of these patients in the ED, and I run through this list each time now. The second takeaway is prevention, so this just really highlights the importance of taking care with central line insertion and removal and other things that we do for access in the emergency department. And finally, the management of this complication, I think, comes down to aggressive supportive care, and the key decision ends up being whether you can stabilize this patient and get them to a hyperbaric center in a reasonable amount of time. I think in this particular case, that probably would have been futile, but I'd think about it in the right scenario, and that's probably the most helpful intervention you could think of.
1: Yeah, I think that prevention is really key here. Like you said, these are very, very rare cases of an air embolism coming from dialysis. But something that we do in the ER all the time, in terms of inserting lines, taking out lines, that sounds like it's a high-risk time as well. And something that we can, you know, can do to avoid in terms of positioning these patients and having them valsalva when we, you know, DC lines and take them out to help prevent future embolisms and cases such as these.
16: Absolutely. Thank you.
6: Today, I've got Britt Long on to discuss a case and a pathology we don't see that often. But that's kind of the name of the EM game. We have to be ready for these things that are rare, that are zebras, but they are going to present to us. We need to be ready to identify them. So, Britt, let's go through this case.
2: Britt
12: Long. So, I mean, this was a case where it didn't quite fit that classic story. And thankfully, I was actually kind of led down to the diagnosis. So, my patient was this 36-year-old male. He came in with a couple days of chest pain, some nausea, some shortness of breath, and then also a subjective fever. The only part of the history that was abnormal, the only thing that he could think of was that a couple days ago, you know, he's he's a weightlifter. He was maxing out on some lifts, and after he did that weightlifting, he began to notice his symptoms. So on exam, didn't look toxic. He was a little bit tachycardic, had some tachypnea, and he also had decreased breast sounds on the left. The EKG was just sinus tachycardia, but the chest x-ray showed a pleural effusion with pneumomediacinum. So this made me stop, and I had to think about what I had so far. I had this patient with chest pain. He was coming in, wasn't super toxic appearing, but he had a mechanism that suggested he may have been increasing his entry pressure, and maybe he could have had an esophageal perforation. And that's exactly what the CT showed.
6: It's a pretty amazing case because when we think about chest pain, chest pain has its own little differential. Then you add fever to it. That's got its own differential. And I'm not sure that I would have teased out that squat. Of course, this is just one more reason not to go to the gym and lift. And now I (laughs) really don't want to lift because I don't want to get an esophageal perforation. But I can't honestly remember the last time I've seen an esophageal perforation. And maybe I missed this. Maybe this patient came in with pretty vague symptoms and I sent him home and I missed it. But I can't remember the last time I saw it. We're taught that it's a pretty rare disease, but that we do have to be ready for it. We do have to catch it because it can have a high mortality associated with it. So when we go back to your patient or patients in general that have this diagnosis, what pieces of the history and physical push you down that road.
12: We all know those major risk factors for esophageal perforation, but the one that we kind of get tripped up on is relying on vomiting. This is part of that Borhov syndrome classic triad where the patient has vomiting, then they have chest pain, and then they have some subcutaneous emphysema. But this is present in less than half of cases, and vomiting is also present in less than half of cases. So instead of relying on this classic triad, instead of thinking about only vomiting, we need to look for other causes of increased intra-esophageal pressure. It could be a patient who comes in after extreme exertion or weightlifting, like in my case, but there are case reports of childbirth, seizure, prolonged coughing, and even laughing that has been associated with esophageal perforation. When these patients come in, pain by far is going to be the most common symptom. It's present in about 70% of cases, but it really depends on the perforation location, so it may not just be chest pain. And other symptoms also depend on the location. If you think about that patient who has a cervical level perforation, they may come in with dysphagia, neck pain, pain with neck flexion, a patient with a thoracic site perforation can have chest pain, back pain, epigastric pain, they may have some shortness of breath. And then the patient who comes in with a distal esophageal perforation, they can actually have leakage into the abdominal cavity and then this can lead to peritonitis and then radiation of pain to the shoulders because of that diaphragmatic irritation problem is once that perforation occurs, you can have mediastinal contamination. And this is where the patient can get sick. They can have those systemic signs and symptoms. They may have a fever, which is usually delayed. On exam, you might find the classic subcutaneous emphysema. You might find Hammond's crunch, which is that crunching sound over the precordium. I actually had to look this up when I was researching this because I couldn't quite remember what Hammond's crunch was. But you can't rely on these. These are present in up to 60% of cases. So that leaves over 40% of cases who won't have these classic findings. And then the final thing you need to think about is on your lung exam, you might have some abnormal breath sounds due to a pleural effusion or a pneumothorax. This is most commonly found on the left because of how the perforation occurs.
6: It's almost like when you have aortic dissection where depending on where that dissection is, you might just have back pain or you might just have abdominal pain or you might have chest and back pain or, or even chest and neck pain. And I think the esophagus is kind of, what you're telling me is very similar, depending on where that perforation is, might tell you where the pain is or what type of pain the patient's having. But even with pain, where you said it's the most common, we're still talking about maybe 30% of people won't have pain as one of the symptoms they're coming in with, which can make this tricky. And again, it, it really does push us to ask about onset and maybe the situation around that onset, which might push us more towards this diagnosis. Chest and abdominal pain, obviously extremely common. We see them all the time. We're going to get that good history. Maybe we get something on our physical, maybe not. The question, of course, is then going to be is there some simple, easy test that's free or basically free, non invasive, and it'll give me the diagnosis really quickly so I don't have to think about it, or it'll clinch the diagnosis and I can go down the management path?
12: I'm not going to surprise you here. Labs just aren't going to help us much. They're not sensitive, they're not specific. We really need imaging. Thankfully, a chest x ray is a great place to start. It's abnormal in about 90% of cases. Pneumomediacinum, subcutaneous emphysema might be present. You might see the V sign. This is air outlining the medial left hemidiaphragm and then that left lower mediastinal border. If you have a patient who presents later, like in my case, you might see a pleural effusion, mediastinal air levels, and then also a pneumothorax.
6: This is part of the tricky thing is that when we look at a lot of the classic presentations or the classic findings, Patients usually came in kind of late, sort of like your patient where they'd had symptoms for a couple of days, but our patients are coming in earlier and earlier with their disease process, which means we might see less and less on our imaging, but x-ray still sounds pretty good. 90% of cases are going to have some kind of an abnormality, which hopefully along with that history pushes you to do a little bit more. What is that little bit more, Britt? Is CT where we should be going? Is ultrasound going to be enough? Should we just be going to MRI? What do we need to reach for in terms of diagnostic imaging when either the x-ray is non-specific or it tells us, hey, you know, new mediastinum is there. This could be an esophageal perforation. How do I clinch the diagnosis?
12: The definitive imaging, our go-to test is going to be a CT chest with IV contrast or a CT esophagography. Now, in most centers, we're going to be going with the CT chest. This actually has a sensitivity of around 92 to 100%, so it's pretty good. It can help us look for alternative diagnoses It can look for involvement of surrounding structures, and then also it can help us guide management. The tricky part with imaging is when you're suspicious, but your CT is negative. In that case, we do have some other tests like a diagnostic endoscopy or a fluoroscopy using water-based contrast, but Swami, I haven't done that in the ED, so you'll have to get your consultants involved here for that.
6: And these might be the cases where you are really suspicious. Your x-ray and CT aren't quite giving you a definitive answer. And so you observe the patient. You keep them and say, I think something's going on here. Let's keep them. Let's watch them. Let's see what happens. And maybe whatever it is resolves and there's no problem. Or they start to really declare themselves. But the couple of times that I have made this diagnosis, I remember there was a lot of high-fiving. Everyone was like, yeah, we got the esophageal perforation. Look how good we are. There was some celebrating, maybe a little bit of dancing, but it was all followed almost immediately by "Oh damn, what do I do now?" Because we don't know a lot about management because we don't make the diagnosis that often. So, what are our priorities once we make the diagnosis?
12: I have five major key semiotics. I'm going to keep this simple, kind of like Corey Slovis here. One. So first, these patients might be sick. They might need resuscitation, and if they're sick, or once you have the diagnosis, part of this is broad spectrum IV antibiotics as soon as you have that diagnosis. You have options like piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin, or another one would be meropenem and vancomycin. Two. The second key is to manage symptoms with antiemetics and analgesics. The reason why this is important is because you want to avoid any further increases in esophageal pressures that might come from vomiting. The problem with vomiting is that vomiting can actually worsen that intraesophageal pressure and potentially increase the tear.
16: Three.
12: Third is administering a PPI. Four. Fourth. Is making that patient NPO. Five. And finally, and probably most important, is to involve your specialists early. You need to load the boat here. I'm talking thoracic surgery, interventional radiology, gastroenterology, and critical care. The reason why I'm recommending so many specialists is we have several options now available for definitive therapy. And these patients are usually toxic, they're usually sick. Traditionally, all patients with esophageal perforation were managed with primary surgical repair. This is still the case for those patients who have a large perforation. Maybe they have an overwhelming mediastinal infection or they have a large collection of infectious material. These patients need the surgical intervention for the mediastinal washout and then they need the direct repair. With more recent therapies, we do have a couple other options. There are now minimally invasive procedures which means our specialists can use something kind of like a hybrid approach. So for example, if you have a patient and they have a contained tear, The GI specialist might place a stent across that tear, and then if there's a collection of infectious material, IR can go in and drain that. This can help the patient avoid a potentially major invasive surgery. The final option is non-operative management. This is going to be for a small subset of patients. These patients have been diagnosed early, they have a contained leak within the cervical esophagus or the mediastinum, and they have no involvement of the abdominal region, and finally, they have to be systemically well. They can't look toxic appearing.
6: The important thing here, Britt, is I think a lot of us work in places that have none of those consultants in-house. We have to transfer to get any of those consultants on board. And so what we don't want to do is we make this diagnosis. The patient doesn't look that bad, so we just park them upstairs on a medicine floor with some antibiotics on board because if the patient decompensates, it's going to be a while before they can get to management. So once you find this diagnosis, even if the patient looks good, you should be transferring them for definitive care. If you happen to have some of these consultants in your hospital but not others, well, get them involved and let them help you make the decision. Does this person need to be transferred to a larger institution to have the rest of their management? Can they stay in our place to get that management done? But I don't think this is a place to just park them on a medicine floor and call it a day. We really need to be on top of these patients. And it's kind of easy when they're really sick. When they're really sick, we all know we got to get them off to a surgeon. If I don't have a surgeon in-house, it's those, they don't look that sick person where we really do have to be aggressive about transferring, getting those consultants on board. At this point, we've got our antibiotics loaded. We've got our consultants loaded, or we're transferring to those consultants. While I'm waiting, while I'm waiting for those consultants to come down or for that patient to go to the tertiary center, what are the things that I need to consider in the emergency department?
12: There are a couple other ways that we can optimize the care of these patients and maybe even avoid making a big mistake. So the first one comes back to that patient who there might be a delay in surgical intervention and they have significant GI material within the pleural cavity. This is a good time to think about placing that chest tube to remove that infectious material from their pulmonary system. The second key here is airway. Many of these patients are going to be hemodynamically unstable. They might be in respiratory distress because of that accumulation of profound amounts of subcutaneous air. I would recommend you think about early intubation in these patients if they're going towards that road. I caution the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. The reason why I say this is that there's a potential increase in transluminal pressures within the esophagus that can worsen the tear. And second, non-invasive ventilation can actually increase the subcutaneous air, so it makes it even more difficult to establish a definitive airway. The next point is an NG tube placement. Most of these patients are going to have an NG tube placed at some point while they're hospitalized. If you're going to do this in the ED, speak with your consultants first and place it with care. You want to make sure you pretreat the patient and get them comfortable. Something like causing a gag reflex while you're placing that NG tube could again make that tear worse. The final point is the use of antifungals. There are very, very few times where we're going to use an antifungal in the ED. There is a subset of patients with perforation where this might be beneficial. And those patients are those with a history of immunocompromise. They have a prior esophageal lesion or infection. They've had prolonged PPI use, or they have other major risk factors for a fungal infection. But before you just kind of go willy-nilly and provide this patient with an antifungal, you'll probably again want to add another consultant and speak with your ID colleagues.
6: One of the things you mentioned there is the NG tube. And and honestly, I have a little bit of reluctance about placing that. There's a tear in the esophagus. I'm going to put an NG tube in. Yes, I might cause them to gag and increase that intraluminal pressure. But could I also put the NG tube through the tear and make this worse?
12: It's very rare in the literature that this happens. But again, I would stress that you need to speak with your specialist before you place this. Many of the specialists, especially the surgeons will want to place this themselves.
6: And that's been my experience. Exactly. The cases that I've had, I've called, I've asked about this. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't put the NG tube in. We'll do it under direct visualization. There are some risks involved here. So yes, definitely get on the phone with your consultants, discuss it with them and determine what the best pathway is instead of just kind of forcing it in on your own and good topicalization can really help with that NG tube placement. I know sometimes we don't take the time to do good NG tube topicalization before placement. This is a place where you really wanna do that. Summary. And Brent, I think what we have here now is a real approach to making this diagnosis and then knowing what to do when we make the diagnosis, if we stumble into it. And I think many of us will stumble into it. We'll have that patient with kind of nonspecific chest pain. We're not really thinking ACS but we get a chest X-ray and then we find those abnormalities. We find a small pleural effusion. They have a fever. We see a little bit of subcutaneous air or we see some pneumomediastinum. We need to get that CT scan to make the definitive diagnosis. And then we need to load our consultants, get GI, get thoracic surgery, get interventional radiology, critical care. All these folks need to be on board. In the meantime, we're going to give antibiotics. We're going to give a PPI. We're going to consider whether that airway needs to be taken if that patient is really unstable. And remember that these patients can decompensate. They can decompensate pretty quickly. So we don't want to just park them on a floor, even if they look good. We want to make sure that we get them to the specialists that need to see them immediately To determine what the next steps in management are going to be. Britt, thanks for going through all of this with us. We will drop a link to the article that you wrote about this in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. People can look at that and see kind of the whole spectrum of everything you need to know on this topic. But again, I think this really kind of gets our level of understanding of the disease up so that we can catch it and we know what to do when we see it.
12: Thanks so much, Swami.
3: Experts Corner.
9: Greetings all, Vanessa Cardi here. But don't be fooled, this isn't a rural medicine segment. Because you see, on our family medicine program, Right on Prime, we have something that we call Specialist Corner, where we pick the brains of a specialist on a specific topic. And this month, we're going to try something new, where I chat with a specialist about IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease, for MRAP, covering what we need to know as ER docs. And then, during the same month over on Right on Prime, we'll keep chatting about IBD from the GP perspective. We've never done this before, so here's hoping it all works out. So after you listen to this piece, hop on over to Right Arm Prime, which is part of your MRAP subscription, and check out the follow-up stuff on outpatient issues with IBD.
10: IBD. Let's talk about IBD. Let's talk about IBD. Let's
2: talk about IBD. Let's talk about
4: IBD. What are we talking about?
9: So to launch this concept, we are joined by gastroenterologist Dr. Chadwick Williams, Chad has been a guest before on Right on Prime, but this is his first time on MRAP. Welcome to MRAP, Chad. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Thanks, Vanessa, and great intro. I'm a gastroenterologist with an IBD fellowship training. I'm working out of Dartmouth General Hospital in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's my hometown. So I'm a blue noser born and raised in Nova Scotia. But I actually left home to complete my internal medicine training at the University of Calgary. And then I went on to do my inflammatory bowel disease fellowship at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. So my, my practice currently is nearly completely clinical, but I do partake in teaching. I enjoy teaching the residents and medical students, and I do dabble in a little bit of clinical research now and then as well.
9: All right, well, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us launch this concept where we cover a topic from the emergency room straight through to the outpatient clinic. The goal here is to empower the frontline workers so that we don't have to call the specialist every single time with basic workup and treatment questions. And what better topic to tackle today than inflammatory bowel disease? And who better to chat with than you, Chad, as you are an expert, clearly, in IBD? Now, this isn't meant to be an introduction to IBD. We are presuming a baseline of knowledge here. But how about you give us a few quick lines of summary of what IBD is and how it is classified.
0: Background. Right. So as you alluded to, it's quite a broad subject. So I will be fairly succinct, understanding that most of the listeners have an understanding of what inflammatory bowel disease is. So in general, IBD encompasses two bowel diseases, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. These diseases represent really important causes of morbidity and decreases in quality of life for affected individuals. And unfortunately, these diseases are very common. Crohn's disease can affect any segment of the GI tract, but most often does involve the ileocolonic region. It can be transmural in its nature and can be associated with penetrating disease, including perianal fistulizing disease or intra-abdominal fistulizing disease with abscesses. Ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, affects only the colon and does not affect the small bowel. It always starts in the rectum and can move proximally in a confluent manner up the rest of the colon. Both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis can be associated with various extra-intestinal manifestations of disease, and these can be quite important, we'll talk about those a little later. Crohn's disease often presents with diarrhea, abdominal pain, anorexia, and weight loss as its cardinal features and not all patients have all of those symptoms, of course. The most common clinical presentation of ulcerative colitis, though, is bloody diarrhea, and often without abdominal pain or weight loss.
9: Now, because we're keeping this practical, how about we go over the most frequent questions you get from ER docs when they call you up about a patient with IBD? Because I think most of us have those same questions that keep coming up, and we did actually poll a number of ER docs for their thoughts on this topic, and so we've collected this little list. Are you ready?
0: Yes, I am ready. Tests.
9: All right. So let's say that we have a patient in the emergency room and they haven't been diagnosed with any form of IBD yet. What tests should we be doing in the emergency room to diagnose it if we suspect it, or at least to start the diagnostic process?
0: Right. So I think you've keyed in on it. I think that inflammatory bowel disease is not a disease that in most scenarios we can actually diagnose clearly in the emergency department environment. However. I think the vast majority of the workup can be done there to strongly suggest it, and then we can go on from there to confirm it outside of the ER. So the first thing to always keep in mind with IBD is that the clinical history is often the most important part and strongly suggests the diagnosis. So getting a clear clinical history from the patient is imperative. It's also important uh, not to assign a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease too quickly to a patient who's presenting with an acute presentation of symptoms because oftentimes those individuals may have other diagnoses that are not IBD, such as infectious enterocolitis, for instance. The blood work can be very helpful, and I often recommend, I usually recommend a CBC, so complete blood count, iron indices, including ferritin, and a CRP, a C-reactive protein, which is a blood inflammatory marker, of course. A fecal calprotectin is really helpful. Not everyone has easy access to that within their emergency departments, But it is an inflammatory marker that is quite useful in the workup for inflammatory bowel disease. But ultimately, the diagnosis will require endoscopy and histologic evidence of inflammatory bowel disease. Of course, diagnostic imaging can be helpful as well. Imaging.
9: Okay, speaking about imaging, now let's move on to a different scenario. Say we have a patient come in who has known inflammatory bowel disease, and they're having what seems like a flare. Which of these patients are going to need a CT scan? Do we need to scan all of them? Is that really something that has to be done?
0: There is a big push away from CT scanning or even x-raying many of these individuals. And there are certain exceptions, of course. But the reasons that we don't like to do x-rays or CTs in these individuals, if we can help it, is because most of these patients obviously develop the disease very young. They may come to emergency departments or other institutions for clinical care fairly frequently, and will often end up getting multiple CT scans or multiple x-rays during their lifespan. And we want to try and prevent that, obviously, because there's ionizing radiation involved. There are some scenarios in which I would strongly recommend getting CT scan, and those would include individuals who are presenting with obstructive symptoms, so nausea, vomiting, obstipation in the setting of inflammatory bowel disease. And those who have evidence of either intra abdominal sepsis or perianal sepsis, i.e., with perianal fistulizing disease or uh, perianal abscess.
9: Okay, I love it. It sounds so straightforward. This is perfect. Like for most people, don't necessarily need a CT scan unless there are concerning signs. So it's kind of follow the clinical picture, but it doesn't have to be something that's done automatically. Exactly. Starting meds. All right, now talking about things that we can do in the eMERGE again. If a patient with IBD who has known IBD, comes to the emergency room and you know is experiencing symptoms, but they don't have a GP. They don't have someone who's following them, um, they don't necessarily have someone to take care of their medications. Can we start a patient on meds in the emergency room or is that something that we should just completely leave to GI?
0: It's a really tricky question to answer. So in an ideal world, you know one where the GI consultants wait times are very short, I would recommend against an emergency physician actually initiating most medications on these patients. In clinical practice, however, where wait times can be quite long, especially during these times where we're challenged by pandemic restrictions and uh, wait lists, I suggest doing something a little different. And what I would suggest is actually having a discussion, a good old-fashioned discussion with the GI specialist who's on call to determine what the best course of action may be. Those would be the individuals who would be most aware and in tune to what their wait lists are like and how quickly they would be able to see the patient and whether or not there would be a medication that could be started in the emergency department while the patient waits to be seen by the GI consultant.
9: Well, I think a lot of us, particularly people who don't work in sort of maybe tertiary care or academic centers, are used to sort of calling and initiating with the support of the specialist because it's going to be quite a while before we can physically get the patient to a specialist. So I think this is all common sense, which is great. I love it. Great.
7: Medications.
9: Talking about medications... There seem to be more and more medications and more and more issues with all the different medications, but which medications do ER docs really need to know about when it comes to IBD? Like, say we're talking about a patient coming in with flares. Can we change their doses? Is there something that we need to do, or should we be not touching this with a 10-foot pole?
0: I think it depends. And the answer to many of my questions may be it depends because, you know, it's a it's a very nuanced type of situation. So in general, I do not recommend changing most inflammatory bowel disease medications for patients who are flaring. Possible exceptions to that recommendation would be corticosteroid therapies and 5-ASA therapies if patients are already on those. For instance, if a patient develops recurrent inflammatory bowel disease symptoms while they're tapering down off of a steroid, then I think it makes really good sense to consider having that patient go back on the last most effective dose of the corticosteroid while they wait to see their consultant in follow-up, their GI consultant in follow-up. Likewise, if a patient is on a 5-ASA therapy and uh, they're not on full dose and they're presenting with a clinical presentation consistent with an inflammatory bowel disease flare, I'd recommend optimizing that therapy. And for most 5-ASA therapies, that optimization would be a total daily dose of 4 grams or 4.5 grams, depending on how the doses are structured and or 4-gram rectal therapy administered via enema, for instance. And I say that with regard to 5-ASA because the risk profile for 5-ASA is so low. I would have no concerns about optimizing that patient if they're not already optimized on that therapy. Side effects.
9: Now, what about side effects or medication interactions that we need to know about?
0: I think the group of therapies that we're most concerned about with our IBD patients, our corticosteroid therapies. They're far and away the most toxic and problematic therapies that we use, but they're also very effective when used in the proper context. So steroids have many side effects, as we know, and I won't elaborate on all of them, except to say that obviously we get concerned with uh, patients being on prolonged or frequent doses of steroids because of bone health, so osteoporosis, avascular necrosis. Also, many of our patients have developed mood disorder or exacerbation of mood disorder on corticosteroids. We need to be aware of that. Weight gain and uh, hypertension and hyperglycemia. Those would be some of the major ones that we get concerned about. The other big one is risk of infection on corticosteroid therapy. Azathioprine is an immunomodulator that we utilize in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Side effects are numerous. The major ones that we get concerned about in this population would be drug-associated pancreatitis, hepatitis, and severe leukopenia. Methotrexate is another immune modulator that we utilize fairly often. It's actually, you know, has pretty good Canadian data, and that's where we uh, started using methotrexate in inflammatory bowel disease, was based on Canadian data. It's well known to cause GI upset. In fact, most patients who take methotrexate notice at least some degree of GI upset and so we have to caution them about how to utilize it and when to utilize it to try and minimize that. Hepatitis is also another big adverse event that can happen with um, methotrexate, and it too can cause severe leukopenia. Then there's this other large group known as the biologics, which are newer therapies in inflammatory bowel disease. And the great thing about this class of drug is that they actually have very favorable side effect profiles as compared to the drugs that I was just speaking to you about. So, Not much in the way of side effects to speak of. Of course, they do interact with the immune system and by definition, modulate how the immune system works. So certain types of infections we need to be wary of regard to biologics. Depending on the biologic, for instance, anti-TNF agents also have the ability to cause demyelination of the neurons, giving something that looks sort of like multiple sclerosis. So we need to warn our patients about that and be cognizant and ask questions around that when they're on the therapies. Lupus-like reactions or skin rash, joint pains on biologics are also documented, but fortunately quite Mm -hmm. uncommon. There's one last category of drug in inflammatory bowel disease that is coming to the forefront now, and there will be more of these drugs coming out, and they're called the JAK inhibitors. And they're technically not biologics, they're actually small molecules, but they seem to be very effective in multiple inflammatory disorders, including inflammatory bowel disease. And they're relatively new to our space. So we're learning about them. There's only one on the market right now for IBD. It's called tofacitinib. Zaljans may be a name that folks know a bit better. And it has been effective in ulcerative colitis, but we also have some concerns about its ability to cause herpes zoster, so shingles, and maybe even a potential for DVT or pulmonary embolisms from these drugs or cardiac events. And those last two things, the uh, venothromoembolic events and cardiac events, are from the rheumatoid arthritis data set, not from IBD. So that's why I say we're not quite so sure that the populations are the same, but definitely the risk of herpes zoster is there for the JAK inhibitors.
9: Okay, that's really interesting. I haven't come across the JAK inhibitors yet, so I will look forward to hearing more about them, I'm sure. Steroids. Now, we talked about whether ER docs should be starting patients on sort of chronic therapy if there's no GI specialist, and we talked about steroids being something that we might need to avoid in terms of long-term use. But what if we have a patient who comes in, they come into the eMERGE, they're known IBD, they're well-appearing, they're afebrile, and they're having all the symptoms of a classic flare, and they don't have access to any other care at this point. Could we just start the steroids?
0: So preferably no, but in practice, yes, and I'll explain. So there are several reasons why I say preferably no. First of all, even though the patient has inflammatory bowel disease, their current symptoms when they present to the emergency department may or may not be due to an active flare of their inflammatory bowel disease. For instance, we always need to be cognizant of the possibility of GI tract infection. And some GI tract infections are actually more common in individuals who have inflammatory bowel disease. So in that group of patients, initiating a corticosteroid would actually be the wrong thing to do or not what we would ideally do. The other issue is that corticosteroid therapy may alter the endoscopic appearance of the disease, making it more difficult for the consultant to make decisions on management when the individual actually ends up presenting to endoscopy. However, sometimes steroids are the right option. And I I just think that the best course of action when contemplating steroid therapy in a patient like this who presents to the eMERGE is to, again, contact the GI consultant to see how quickly they may be able to see them in follow-up. And whether they think that corticosteroid therapy is a good thing to do at this point in time or not. Fistula.
9: Now, moving on to another topic that comes up a lot in the emergency room, the patient with IBD who comes in with a fistula. What should we be doing to manage these patients in the emergency room?
0: So fistulizing disease is, you know, horrible and can be quite demoralizing and incapacitating manifestation of inflammatory bowel disease. In the emergency department, I think one thing that we can do is, first of all, this would be one of the indications where I would consider doing some type of cross-sectional imaging just to make sure that there isn't any perianal sepsis or abscess going on along with the fistulizing disease. So that would be really, really good to know. But as far as management goes, oftentimes antibiotic therapy would be the mainstay, at least over the short term. And antibiotics that have been shown to be quite effective would be a combination of ciprofloxacin and metronidazole, so long as patients obviously are tolerant of those therapies. Amoxicillin clavulinic acid would also be a reasonable option. Ultimately, though, these patients are going to need something more definitive with regard to their management, and that often requires either a biologic or surgical intervention with incision, drainage and seton placement, or both. So... I guess what I'm saying is in the emergency department, I think initiation of antibiotic therapy is a great idea, and that should be done along with some modality to rule out perianal sepsis. But ultimately, a referral should also be sent out to their gastroenterology consultant, as well as probably to colorectal surgeon to discuss surgical management. Colonoscopy.
9: And last question for you here. You have a patient coming into the eMERGE who has known IBD they're coming in with a flare and you're getting ready to discharge them. Do they need to have a more urgent colonoscopy because of that flare or can they sort of go back and fall into their normal routine follow-up with their consultant?
0: Right. I think it depends on the context around that. So, you know, oftentimes these patients will have had fairly recent endoscopy and they just may not be responding to whatever therapy they, they have been on. So that particular patient probably doesn't need another endoscopic assessment if they've had one in recent weeks or you know very recent months it's quite a different story from an individual who's had inflammatory bowel disease for a long time has been on a certain therapy for maintenance and then comes in out of the blue with a flare of their disease and hasn't had any endoscopic investigations in recent time that individual probably warrants some form of reassessment which may very well be endoscopy in uh, the short term i.e. you know 1 to 2 weeks if possible. So the answer is, it depends on which situation the patient actually falls into. Summary.
9: Okay, perfect. That was awesome, Chad. Thank you so much. And my take-home points, let me see if I can summarize this a little bit. So we're unlikely to diagnose this definitively in the emergency room. But if we suspect it um, and you're starting the workup in the eMERGE, consider ordering a complete blood count, iron studies, and a CRP, possibly throwing in a fecal calprotectin if you have it. And even if you don't get the results back in the emergency room, I'm assuming that will be useful down the road. And then refer on for a scope and histologic studies. You also mentioned there's no need to order a CT scan for every single IBD patient like coming in with a flare on an automatic basis. If you suspect intraabdominal sepsis or bowel obstruction, then certainly go for it. But otherwise, you don't necessarily need to irradiate them every single time they come. And in terms of medications, it's likely really best to call GI on call for advice, whether it is starting or changing meds, because there are obviously some nuances, well, lots of nuances that we're not aware of. Does that sound about right?
0: Absolutely. You've nailed it. You've summed it up very well.
9: Well, thank you again. This was super helpful, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the feedback from the listeners. And so thank you. And now see you on the other show now over on Right On Prime.
0: Thanks so much, Vanessa. Looking forward to joining you on Right On Prime. It's been a pleasure.
3: Yeah. Pervit here. It's your Ultra Ultra. Let's get straight into it because people don't like me talking here. Abstract one. Videographic assessment of tracheal intubation technique in a network of pediatric immune departments. A report by the Videography in Pediatric Resuscitation Collaborative, the Viper Collaborative. This was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, February 2022. Really big, really huge, really grand study. So what they did is they went to these pediatric emergency departments, they put a bird's-eye view camera up, and they looked at people doing direct laryngoscopy, video laryngoscopy, and then they asked the question, which one's better? And the answer was, there was not a clear winner here. Despite recent studies that says, that VL is a bit better than direct laryngoscopy. They didn't find that. This was not a randomized trial. This was an observational study. But it is interesting. The key things that Sanjay points out is that, first of all, the first pass success was only about two-thirds of the time. So a third of the time you failed because pediatric airways are a little harder. And he hypothesizes, actually Mike hypothesizes, that probably ER docs, general ER docs, are just as good at pediatric airways as pediatric people because we do so many airways. And it turns out in a subset when they looked at Who was best at this was actually the ER residents. So that's probably two. So Sanjay says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just yet, because this big study suggests that perhaps VL isn't clearly superior to direct laryngoscopy in kiddos. But the key thing is understand that first pass success is not great, but ultimately they got the tube in like 98% of the time. Just remember, first pass success in kids, harder. Than adults. Abstract two. Paper two that they covered was titled Thunderclap Headache Syndrome Presenting to the Emergency Department, an International Multicenter Observational Cohort Study. <laughs> Emergency Message Journal, February 2022, and there's a lot in this. It's a not a perfect sort of observational study, but it is big and huge. One of the questions they asked in this study, and this is what they're specifically sort of reporting on here, is how bad is thunderclap headache? Thunderclap headache defined as a traumatic. Worst at onset, within a few seconds, bad headache? And the answer was a lot of the time, guess what? It was bad. It was subarachnoid hemorrhage. It was an intracranial bleed. It was viral meningitis, which is I always find interesting that viral meningitis in all of these studies can present with a thunderclap headache. Not bad over days or hours, but within seconds, people are like, oh, my head hurts. So they made the diagnosis on CT for a subarachnoid most of the time. But just remember, not all thunderclap headache is subarachnoid, but a lot of them are, and in general, it's a bad thing to have. A sudden onset of a severe headache that peaks at onset is bad and needs a workup.
9: Abstract 4.
3: Abstract 4, I just want to rant a little bit about, be careful about this one. It's effective time to treatment with antiarrhythmic drugs on return of spontaneous circulation and shock refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, Journal of uh, American Heart Association in 2022. And basically, this is a subset of a big study, which was on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, that asked a question. Okay, so if you're going to give a drug in cardiac arrest, lidocaine appears to you know get some more spontaneous circulation back. But is it time-dependent? And they found that it was time-dependent, that if you gave amiodarone early, it was better than amiodarone late. I don't care. I really don't care. This is hypothesis-generating, but I don't care. I hate these studies, which look at return of spontaneous circulation and don't have as an outcome measure who was neurologically intact later on. You can hypothesis-generate the yin-yang about when you should give a drug, how early, how late, but I don't care about return of spontaneous circulation. I only care about intact neurological survival, okay? Just that's all I want to say. That's the only thing that matters in these studies for working clinicians, okay? for The research is fine, but for working clinicians... The only thing you care about is who left the hospital alive neurologically
9: intact. Abstract 5.
3: Abstract 5, very, very practical. Let me ask you a question. Somebody comes in, chop their fingers off, you're in the urgent care, the emergency department, you're in your clinic, wherever you are, you're at home. I was in the kitchen chopping broccoli. How do you prepare those for possible re-implantation? What do you do with said digits that have been chopped off? Go, answer the question. Uh, Wash off the broccoli, soak it in some saline gauze, and then a little Ziploc baggie, and plop it on some ice. That is correct you uh, maybe wash off the poopy and whatever is on there, and then you wrap it in saline-soaked gauze, and then you put it in a plastic bag, which is waterproof, and then you put that on ice. Okay, so that's how you do it. Wash them off, saline-soaked gauze, put it in a watertight uh, bag, and then put that on ice, and that will preserve the part. They found in the study, which was uh, proper preservation of amputated parts of multi-level shortcoming. The Journal of American, Journal of Emergency Medicine, they found that you and I and others didn't do this the right way lots of the time. Like two-thirds of the time we did it wrong. So do it right. you got a better chance of saving some of these digits, probably.
9: Abstract 6.
3: Have you heard about the baby and the bathwater? <laughs> yeah, have. Yeah. Well, Abstract 6 was thiamine supplementation in patients with alcohol use disorder presenting with acute critical illness, a nationwide retrospective observational study. Back in the day... We used to give every alcoholic that came in with anything uh, the banana bag, which had mag and it had thiamine, folate and all that stuff. And over time, people said, well, that doesn't really make sense. It's kind of silly. And so now, I guess you guys aren't doing that. But this was a study where there are people who are sick in the ICU with alcohol use disorder. They're withdrawing. They've got bad things happening to them. And we're not giving it to those people either. But Mike makes the argument, that's probably the group. We should be giving them some thiamine. If they're in the ICU and if they're getting all of these stuff done to them, Probably a little bit of thymine in that group isn't a bad idea. So just because you don't have to give a banana bag to the alcoholic that comes in every single day, if they're critically ill and dying, a little thymine, you know, inexpensive, tastes delicious, uh, maybe you should do it.
0: Abstract 7.
3: So many good papers this month, well, you know, in June, comparison of push-dose phenylephrine and epinephrine in the emergency department. And this basically was sort of a retrospective study here from Southern California from Loma Linda, which basically said, you know, We gave some push-dose epi, and we gave some push-dose phenylephrine, and there's a big difference between the two, and the answer was, eh, probably not. Maybe you get a bit better blood pressure response with epinephrine, but you also had more dosing errors. But this was push-dose epi and phenylephrine that had been pre-mixed. And so the real message here is this is quite a dangerous practice. If you're doing this by yourself, it is actually very complicated. We wrote a chapter. It's in corpendium. We call it the bedside epi drip even though you can find it searching for the dirty epidrip, because dirty makes it sound like you're not doing it sterile. But it's a dangerous practice. Even writing the chapter, and this was done with Brit Guest and Ryan, even writing the chapter, yeah, we had to check ourselves like 150 times to make sure that we got the dosing right, because it's really hard. You're using concentrations, and then you're diluting, and then you're diluting again, and it's like, uh, what the heck? Quite a dangerous thing. Sometimes you might have to do this in extreme circumstances, particularly when you buy yourself and the fact is that if you have a clinical pharmacist that can pre-mix it, you probably have a clinical pharmacist that can do it at the bedside. This is really a, a way of giving epinephrine in my mind when you're out in the boondocks and you have no help or very little help. But just remember, it is quite dangerous. And you should uh, have a process to do this that takes out the danger as much as possible. Doing this on the fly at 4am, really high probability that you're going to screw it up because it's just, it's difficult, I'm just saying. But it is a useful drug every now and then when somebody's, you know, going to bottom out or just bottomed out and you need to, you know, tighten up their sphincters and their blood vessels quickly.
9: Abstract 8.
3: Abstract 8 was low tidal volume ventilation for emergency department patients, a systematic review and meta-analysis on practice patterns and clinical impact, critical care medicine. This was a meta-analysis of what people are doing in the emergency department when it comes to low tidal volume ventilation. And we believe that low tidal volume ventilation is good that in patients with ARDS, you don't sort of overinflate the normal lung and make that all uh, leaky while trying to ventilate these people. So, you know, low tidal volume, six, eight mils per kilogram is kind of where people are at, and it used to be much higher than that. This study really can't tell us about outcomes because when they pulled all this data, they said most of the data is poor. But in most academic centers with patients that are getting tubed, particularly for things uh, like acute lung injury, These centers have moved to an average of around 6, 6 6.5 mls per kilogram for their tidal volumes. And you should probably too, even though the data in this is uh, not so good, but the smartest people out there have moved to low tidal volume ventilation strategies.
9: Abstract 9. I
3: was excited about abstract 9 because it's really clinically, well, it could be clinically important. Determinants of pyelonephritis onset in patients with obstructive urolithiasis. So the idea here, this is in urologica is if you've got somebody with an obstructed stone, maybe they've got a little bit of dirtiness in the whiz, can you predict who's going to go and get pylo? And if you could predict, maybe you would do something different. But this study, as Sanjay points out, is so fraught with methodological issues, it doesn't really come up with an answer. We still don't know. Looking at this patient with some variables that we could work out in the emergency department, who's at higher risk and lower risk? So you're still stuck with the idea that some of these patients are going to become infected and get pylo, and that's going to change them from an outpatient disease often to an inpatient disease. But we can't predict that very well. So you just have to tell the patients come back. If the pain gets worse, if you get a fever, if you're septic and dying, come on right on back to our septic and dying outpatient clinic. It's unfortunate. Look, there were so many other papers here, it's hard for me to get my head around it. I got to tell you, I'm being truthful here. If you listen to this every month, you'll be a literal legend and people will talk about you behind your back and they'll say, that person is so smart. But you don't listen to me you're not all doing it it's upsetting to me so listen to EMA every month multiple times just do it if I'm upsetting I want you to be legends talk to you next month you could have been a legend
8: but you didn't read the paper
7: you didn't read the papers
0: It's unfortunate You could've been a legend You didn't read the papers But you didn't read the papers And now you're not a legend Not a
8: legend Could've been a legend I want you to be legends
6: right, everyone, it's time for the mailbag. Let's hop on over to the home office in Saugatuck, Michigan.
7: Here you'll find so much to do. Take an exhilarating dune ride or take a leisurely stroll along our boardwalk and explore the sophisticated charm of our shops, galleries, and restaurants.
5: Yeah, so Swami, back in January, you and Scott discussed stopping cardiac arrest resuscitation and one of our listeners, Donald Crowe, had some thoughts and sent us some audio. (sighs)
10: Letter one. Hi,
8: guys. This is Dr. Donald Crow, checking in from Ocala, Florida. I listened with great interest, as always, to Dr. Weingart and Swami Nathan's piece in the January 2022 MRAP as they addressed the question, when do we stop in cardiac arrest? Having practiced emergency medicine for over 40 years, I have made this decision well over a thousand times. This background compels me to offer a few comments which I believe pertinent to this discussion. This experience has shown me that the biggest factor that matters when considering the likelihood of success as we begin a resuscitation is the history leading up to that arrest. This history ultimately has been the biggest influence on my decisions to end resuscitation. This is because this history allows us to make the distinction between whether this is a primary cardiac arrest in which aggressive and persistent efforts are warranted or a secondary cardiac arrest where such efforts are routinely futile. Like everyone in our specialty, I have practiced throughout my career in an environment where all things resuscitation have been dominated by the teachings of ACLS. But I paid attention during all those resuscitation attempts and have come to the conclusion that one of the reasons we are not resuscitating people more successfully in 2022 than we did in 1982 is because of some fundamental misconceptions bestowed upon us by the ACLS paradigm. First among those is the fallacy that the process of death is a cardiac event. Yes, it certainly is sometimes, but more often, it is not. The fundamental premise of ACLS is that the process of death begins with a cardiac arrest, and that this process can be interrupted so that the patient can be returned to their pre arrest status. However, the fact is that for many patients, and certainly the vast majority of patients who experience an in hospital cardiac arrest, is that that cardiac arrest comes not at the beginning of the process of death, but at the end. In other words, the patient dies and then has a cardiac arrest, rather than the patient has a cardiac arrest and then dies, as ACLS would have us believe. The patient's history, therefore, becomes paramount. The guy who is out playing in his senior softball league and suddenly collapses has experienced a primary cardiac arrest. Statistically, the most likely event is an acute malignant dysrhythmia, typically ventricular fibrillation, after some ischemic event. Certainly other things can cause this clinical picture. A catastrophic stroke, a vascular catastrophe, for instance. But these are rare compared to the former. This is the individual who can benefit from chest compressions to buy time until defibrillation can be applied the sooner the better. But what about the patient who has a cardiac arrest on the pulmonary floor in the hospital? Countless times during my career, I was summoned to respond to such codes after the patient was noted to be unresponsive and had, quote, suddenly bradied down on their cardiac monitor, if someone was watching. Our ACLS-trained personnel routinely immediately put a board under this patient's torso and begin pumping on their chest, and this usually was in full swing when I arrived at the patient's bedside. My response to the patient's pulselessness was to intubate and ventilate them, give them some epinephrine. And after doing this for a while, more often than not, simply declaring them dead, since there was no return of spontaneous circulation or any signs of life. I suggest that in this scenario, this cardiac arrest did not start the process of death, but instead simply ended it. This is a secondary cardiac arrest. Doing chest compressions on this patient, I believe, is futile. This is a patient who has had evolving hypoxia and acidosis as a result of respiratory failure, sepsis, or any other number of fatal disease processes, such that their own heart pumping their own blood has led to that heart stopping because that blood is no longer capable of sustaining life. So now, even if compressing their chest does provide adequate circulation, how could circulating this same poisoned blood that led to the arrest? help this patient. If I magically had ECMO to instantly circulate the blood while transforming it from an acidotic hypoxic goo that has led to death into a life-sustaining mixture that can deliver oxygen and remove acidic byproducts, then maybe I can help. But for most of us, ECMO is hours away, and I would argue that our opportunity to resuscitate this patient with the secondary cardiac arrest has already passed us by. ACLS has burdened us with the idea that the heart tells us when we need to resuscitate someone, and it does on occasion. But tragically, most often, it does not. Other factors must be monitored, other than the rhythm of the heart, to tell us that the patient has begun the process of dying. The respiratory rate, the acid-base balance, the level of cognition, and a host of others are useful in this regard. But I would argue that we have practiced under the misconceptions of the ACLS cardiocentric viewpoint for so long that our personnel underappreciate what is going on with their sick patients who are now getting sicker and need resuscitation. They don't distinguish between primary and secondary cardiac arrests, and they treat them both the same, the only way they know how, with their ACLS protocols. Therefore, When deciding when to stop a cardiac arrest, this decision really depends on why we started the resuscitation in the first place. Was the patient sick before the event? If not, it is likely we are dealing with a primary cardiac arrest, and that chest compressions could help by circulating the blood, which a few moments before had sustained this patient's life, and is likely to be able to do so to some extent for several minutes to come. But if the patient has been sick and getting sicker, then a cardiac arrest usually signals that the opportunity to resuscitate them successfully has already been lost, and therefore efforts should not proceed for any great length of time. I don't blame our personnel since they are doing just as they have been trained. I believe it is time to move beyond ACLS to a teaching program that recognizes that death is an event involving every body system. If more resuscitations are begun before the heart tells us that the process of death is complete with a secondary cardiac arrest, then our chances of returning patients to their lives might actually improve. I argue that it is time for emergency physicians, who are the specialists in resuscitation, to lead the effort to develop a new training program that acknowledges that death is quite often more than just a cardiac event. Thanks for hearing me out.
6: Well, Donald, thank you for the audio. And this one, I think, really struck home with Jan and I as well, because this is what we learned. You really have to know what was the situation around the arrest before you decide exactly what you're going to do. And sometimes we don't really get that information or we don't seek that information out. So this was a really good reminder.
5: Yeah, not all cardiac arrest is created equal. And thank you for reminding us of that. (laughs) And that is going to be our mailbag for the month. Remember to keep on sending
6: in those letters and send in audio. If you've got a little audio comment you want to make, send them on over to us. We love hearing your voices. We love hearing your comments, but we're also happy to get your questions and get those answered. Keep those letters coming.
7: The art of relaxation, the art of recreation, the art of nature. All these are dimensions to the art of being Sagatuk and Douglas.
8: Mega, 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 monster. Like that?
5: (laughs) So here we are, Swami. We're on the other side. We're here to do a mega summary for everyone. This is very helpful when you don't have all the hours it takes to listen to every single piece. We are here to boil it down for you.
3: Mega boil it down.
5: So Swami, why don't you kick it off? Let's start it off with the Critical Care Mailbag. I got to sit down with
6: Scott and talk about some issues around transfusions, what we're calling the critical transfusion piece starting with talking about type and screen versus type and cross match. We kind of broke those terms down. Type is the ABO group. I think we know that. The screen is looking for some of those minor antibody groups. So things like RH and Kel and Duffy, a lot of things that we probably forgot about along our training. And then the cross match is a final confirmation. And, Scott really has two take-home points when it comes to the type and screen or the type and cross match. The first is you don't have to type and cross most of your patients. If they're negative for minor antibody groups, a type and cross match is not necessary. A type and screen is plenty. And then the second big take-home point is that when there is a patient who has some of these minor antibodies that are present, you wanna have an alert from your blood bank. And if you don't have that already, Get on the phone, talk to your blood bank and work out a system and say, you know, when you find these minor antibodies in a patient, give us a call and let us know so that we know either why blood is being held up or how long it's gonna take to get blood for this patient should we need it. Now, from there, we went into the intermediate transfusion strategy. And Scott calls this somewhere in between, maybe this person needs blood and the massive transfusion where I'm not sure exactly how much blood they're gonna need. And I'm not sure that I wanna activate a massive transfusion and all the resources that go into it and instead what i want is a two pack i want two units of pack cells and two units of ffp because even when a patient comes in hypotensive with trauma or hypotensive with a gi bleed sometimes they stabilize after two units and maybe that's enough so an intermediate pack might be something that we could really use to not overactivate massive transfusion but still get the amount of blood we need for that sick patient in front of us Jen, do you guys have something like this? Do you have one of these intermediate kind of thresholds?
5: We don't have a a threshold like this, but we do have a blood bank refrigerator in our emergency department. So we sort of use the strategy live with the units that we have, but not really labeled like that.
6: Yeah, I like the labeling and, and maybe this will have even more benefit in places that aren't big shops like yours and mine, where you don't have a lot of blood just lying around in the trauma slot ready to go. I've worked at places like that. It's fantastic to be able to get that blood fast. But this might be kind of the intermediate step, as Scott phrases it, to get the blood fast, but not have to activate your massive transfusion.
5: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I can imagine that this would be really helpful in, in certain circumstances. I happen to love blood bank medicine. I don't know. I'm sort of a nerd about it. I did a lecture on this when I was a resident, and I actually went to the blood bank and met the blood bank director and looked at all the units and learned a lot about it. And these people, are they have such a specialized knowledge. And these basics, like, they assume that we know all these basics, but just like you mentioned, we forget a lot of the basics of blood bank transfusion medicine along the way. Reviewing this, I think, is super helpful and very useful.
6: I feel like we should all just become friends with our blood bank. That's the next step. Let's go uh, have some drinks with them and get to be close friends.
5: Yeah, take a field trip up there. I'm telling you, it is interesting.
6: Rural medicine talks. All right, Jan, let's switch gears a little bit and get into the rural medicine piece.
5: So Vanessa this month brought us a piece that she calls Second Opinion. And the story is about a patient who is, of course, out in the boonies and had slipped on some ice and fell on the elbow and had a bad radial head fracture. And in the place where Vanessa works, this rural ER, they have an orthopedic consultant who is about a thousand kilometers away and does the consults remotely. And normally this is a very, very, very useful, very friendly, very productive relationship. But in this particular case, the orthopedist who was on was having a really bad day and was very terse and rude and basically recommended to just basically splint and sling this patient and not to really give very good close follow up and and the ER physician who was on the phone got off the call thinking I don't know if this is actually the right recommendation and so she talks about how difficult it is to actually get a second opinion in a place where you are limited to one consultant who's you know serving you remotely eventually they got a hold of a different surgeon who reviewed the case and gave a slightly different recommendation But really, the point of the piece is not about the management of the fracture. It's about interpersonal issues with consultants who are on call. And these come up very frequently, but they're very important in their impact. It obviously affects the way that we feel on shift. It can affect the way that we feel personally, even though it's not personal. And one of the take homes here is to always keep the patient as the center of the conversation, always needs to be the priority anytime you're getting into a bit of a conflict. The other thing to remember is that, you know, people do have bad days, and you need to give people a little bit of slack and not, you know, Fly off the handle in terms of reactivity, but to try to understand what's going on. And again, keep the patient the center of the conversation. These are really common experiences and they're very common in isolated environments when there is literally no one else to reach out to that you can kind of go to a different orthopedist. You've got one orthopedist. One other little tidbit she gave us, which I liked, which is try to meet your consultants in person so that you have sort of a face to face relationship. And that can often be beneficial to improve those relationships as well. And she describes, you know, when I go on a fixed wing transport to a hospital where I have a lot of consultants that I talk to over the phone, I do my best to try to see and meet whoever I can while I'm there. And now I have met them face-to-face and it can also create a better relationship.
6: I'm sure that a lot of our rural listeners are thinking, oh yeah, this happens all the time. But Jane, you and I know this happens all the time in the less rural places too, because you have someone who's on call, you talk to them, maybe you disagree. It's still hard to get a second consult on that same patient, especially because very likely that the second person you're calling is colleagues with the first person you called. And they don't want to give a second opinion. They don't necessarily want to go against what their colleague said. So I think this can be very challenging. But if you keep the patient at the center of it and you say, hey, you know, I I understand this is what I got, but I'm really worried about this patient. And that's why I'm calling just to make sure that this is a safe plan. Sometimes that kind of language does really help. But it is a very tricky thing to navigate. There's political issues with it, et cetera. You just have to be careful. But it is the right thing to do. If you think it's the right thing to do for your patient, you really do have to pursue it. It's the ground. Jen, our next piece was with Mike and Mike, the bounce back piece on the necrotizing soft tissue infections, one of my favorite pieces, because I always worry about missing these things.
5: Yeah, we all do. It's a very tricky diagnosis, which is why we talk about it so frequently. And and this was a case of necrotizing soft tissue infection of the leg that was initially missed. Of course, this is a bounce back piece, so. It was initially missed and ended up being diagnosed in a delayed fashion. And this piece really covers two things in detail. One is the tricky aspects of the diagnosis and talking about the imperfectness of the Larenic score, the variable clinical signs and symptoms. There's really nothing that you can count on. The very important clinical finding of pain out of proportion, which you really need to take seriously when your exam doesn't show you too much, but the patient is really telling you that something's wrong. And certainly the earlier the patient is in this disease process, the harder it is to diagnose. Also, you know, imaging is something we often reach for, but it will not clinch this diagnosis for you. So if the imaging is negative, it does not rule this out, again, making it even more tricky. But the second part of this discussion that was so interesting was the detail about getting sued because Mike Palacci, one of the presenters, was actually one of the defendants in this case. And so he talks about the emotional impact, the personal and professional impact what it was like preparing for deposition, some of the issues about settling a case versus fighting a case and the nuances when it comes to malpractice insurance. So this piece was helpful in multiple respects. And
6: I like having that aspect of a Jan, of talking to somebody who was the defendant, because it's important for us to know this happens to the best of us. I know Mike, he's a fantastic guy. He's an excellent physician. This happens to all of us at some point. And we need to know that we're kind of sharing this experience more than it is us alone. And we're the only ones who this ever happens to. I think it's really important to know. And I don't know that I would be as great about sharing that difficulty with the audience, but thanks to Mike for really showing us all of the different aspects of this and why it's important for us to know about all of these different pieces.
3: Long. Our
6: next piece was another one of these difficult to diagnose entities. It was Britt Long and Justin Carlson talking about spinal epidural abscess, If you've been practicing long enough, you've missed one of these. And and if you haven't missed one of these, you have. You just don't know that you missed one of them because that's how difficult these can be. And they really talk about how we can do a better job about making this diagnosis. The challenge, of course, is that many of these patients will come in with back pain. Back pain is a very common presentation. Spinal epidural abscess is pretty rare. And we've got to pick that needle out of the haystack. They talk about thinking about risk factors. If the patient is a diabetic, if they have HIV, they have cancer, they have renal disease, liver disease, they're on immunosuppressants. They talk about a couple other ones in there. And one of the big ones, Jan, is if the patient is an IV drug user. I think those of us who work in those populations kind of know if an IV drug user complains about back pain, I got to go after that spinal epidural abscess almost every time, even if I had to carry that to completion over and over again with negative workups because it's such a high risk population. Many patients will complain of back pain fever is kind of inconsistent. The triad of back pain, fever, and neurologic deficit is pretty uncommon, less than 15%, which means, again, you just have to be thinking about this in every patient you see with back pain. Every patient that comes in with those flu-like symptoms doesn't mean you have to work them all up, but you got to consider it. Once you think that you do need to go further in working these up, your real diagnostic modality of choice here is going to be an MRI. Yes, you can get a CT myelogram, but most of our places don't do CT myelograms And so MRI is really where the money is. And if you're going after a spinal epidural abscess, you're going to want to MRI the entire spine with contrast. Don't just say, oh, well, the patient's only tender in the lumbar area, so I'm just going to look there because skip lesions are very common. And what often happens, Jan, I've experienced this a couple of times, I get the MRI, I find the spinal epidural abscess, I call my neurosurgeon and they say, well, where's the rest of the spine? And I'm like, oh, no, I only got the thoracic because that's where they're tender. He goes, I need the whole spine because of these skip lesions. So just get the whole spine. If you're thinking about it, You got to get the whole thing with that MRI. And then, management wise, we're going to start them on antibiotics. We want to think about resistant organisms. So, we might need vancomycin. If the patient looks good, they're stable, they're non toxic, talk to your consultant who might be doing surgery on them because often they'll say, you know, the patient looks pretty good and they're not septic. Wait on the antibiotics. I'm going to take them to the OR. I'm going to get a biopsy, and then we'll start the antibiotics after that. So, these are the places where we really do need to talk to our consultants early, get a decision in process on whether this patient's going to go to the OR, and then talk to them about coverage with antibiotics as well.
5: This is such a tricky diagnosis. And, uh, you know, that flu-like illness is such a key finding. The other symptom that I add to that list is weight loss. That's one that also can present with something sort of one of these inflammatory diseases that's sort of smoldering away somewhere in the body, like endocarditis or a spinal epidural abscess that you have to go hunting for. And this whole MRI of the whole spine is the right answer, but is so impractical for so many people. I mean, if you work somewhere where you have to transfer someone for an MRI, you know, this is a big decision to make. And I You know, this is one of the trickiest things about this diagnosis. If it was an easy test to do, we, you know, we just do it. But having to do an MRI of the whole spine is a big deal.
6: You're absolutely right. And I've heard many cases where they got a CT with contrast, found something, couldn't tell what the something was, but then that was enough for them to go and get the MRI. So you can go down that pathway, but just know that if you have a high suspicion and your CT is negative, you still need the MRI. And so you can't obviate the need for that MRI. But yes, the CT sometimes can push you more towards this is an easy transfer. There's clearly something there. I'm worried about it. Transform over and get the MRI done. But you're right. These are tricky. Even in places where you have MRI 24 hours a day, they can be very tricky to get done. Let's talk about Our next piece was I-D-D. on inflammatory I-D-D. bowel Let's disease. About- this was a interview that Vanessa Cardi did with Chad Williams, who's a GI doc. And again, if you pop on over to Write on Prime, one of our sister podcasts, there is the second part of this, the companion piece to this emergency presentation, which is really a little bit more about the further care that these patients need after they've left the emergency department. And I really like this piece, Jan, because I find that these patients can be very challenging. Whether they have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, they often will come in with abdominal pain. And I'm always thinking, do I need to scan them? Do I not need to scan them? Look at how many scans this person has had. What do I do? Do I start them on meds? Do I not start them in meds? And Chad and Vanessa go through all of these different iterations, starting with some of the basics that, again, sometimes we forget Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are very different diseases. Crohn's can affect any part of the GI tract, but it is less common to see the extra intestinal manifestations, whereas ulcerative colitis is only going to be in the colon, but you often see extra intestinal manifestations. And the CT scan and ulcerative colitis can be very important, whereas in Crohn's disease, the CT plays a lesser role. And when you talk to the GI docs, when someone has a flare or they think they have a flare, they're often going after that with endoscopy instead of advanced imaging like CT scan. From there, Chad and Vanessa go through some of the common questions we asked. Do I have to scan them every time? If I see the patient, I'm pretty sure this is a new diagnosis of IBD. Can I start them on meds or should I get them follow up with GI? If I have a patient who tells me this is their usual flair, can I start them on something? Can I titrate up their medications on my own or should I talk to their GI doc? And what we kind of come back to over and over again is the vast majority of these patients, if they have an established diagnosis, if they're on immunomodulators, they have a gastroenterologist who knows them well. And you're best to talk to that gastroenterologist and come up with a plan together. Do I need to get imaging? Maybe I need to admit the patient. We need to start them on other medications. But we're often not going to make those decisions in isolation. We're going to make those decisions with our consultant. Now, obviously, if the patient comes in with clear peritoneal signs and they're febrile and they look terrible, go ahead and scan them. But in those more borderline cases, having your consultant on board to help to guide the management can be really helpful.
5: Absolutely. These consultants can be really helpful. And I agree. I would I would get them on board earlier rather than later to make some, you know, decision making with someone who really does follow this disease more closely than we do. One thing I will say over time is, you know, these biologics have made a huge difference in this disease. People, you know, now that there are these DMARDs out there and people are on these agents long term, you know, I, I feel like I see less of this than I used to see because, you know, people's lives have changed with some of these drugs, which is a good thing. Now there may be other side effects and effects of those drugs that we could talk about in a different segment. But, you know, they really have made a dent in the overall acute flares of these disease.
6: They can, Jen. And I think that's a really important thing to also consider is that if these patients are immunomodulators, they are often at a higher risk for infections and for other inflammatory processes. And again, we don't always have mastery of all of these meds, which is why, again, our consultants can really help to guide us. But just remember, in the back of your head, if they're on one of these drugs, maybe they have one of these rarer infections. We've talked about these a couple of different times. There's a great piece we'll link in the show notes that Billy did on all of these MABs and what they mean and what they do and all of the side effects that people can go back and listen to. Our next piece is the arrest during dialysis. And Jan, you alluded to this one in the intro that it wasn't the typical arrest during dialysis because Jan, when I say, oh, patient was in dialysis and they had an arrest, what's the first thing that comes to your
5: head? Hyperkalemia.
6: It's hyperkalemia, right? Give them all the calcium that you have in the hospital. If you need to, put an NG tube and give them milk down the NG tube, because if you get enough calcium in them, they will reverse. But that's not what this case was. Britt talked to John Sawyer about a rarer cause of the cardiac arrest. This was a 60-year-old in the dialysis center, has a collapse. And when the patient gets EMS and arrives to the emergency department, they've got a GCS of three. They're intubated without any medications in the field. The ECG doesn't really look like hyperkalemia, but of course, you're going to treat that And when they took this patient to CT scan, thinking, oh, maybe they have a bleed because these patients can get bleeds, what they find but cerebral air embolism. And Jan, there are a few things that really do scare me. Cerebral air embolism is one of them because there's not much that you can do to bring the patient back. And Britt and John talk about this entity and what you could do to treat. But what they really focus on isn't treatment of the air embolism, but prevention of the air embolism. Because once they get that air embolism, they have that arrest it's going to be very hard to do things that are going to reverse that. And yes, we talk about aspirating the air out of the right atrium. I've never done that, Jan. I'm not sure that's really a thing or just a a case description kind of thing. They talk about hyperbarics, but the real focus should be in preventing it from happening. So make sure you flush lines and there's no air in there. Make sure they have an occlusive dressing when you're changing central lines. Make sure to have the patient valsalva when that central line is removed. Check the caps and check the lines. Make sure there isn't a ton of air in there. And you can prevent more air getting in if you think some air has been entrained by clamping that line. These are the things that we really need to focus on to avoid the problem instead of trying to figure out how to treat it.
5: Yeah. You know, this is one of those diagnoses we don't see very often and maybe we miss in some cardiac arrest cases. Who knows? But I agree with you. Once it's happened, it's kind of game over. We do learn these sort of heroic maneuvers, but realistically, they're often not done. And so You know, we do a lot of these venous arterial procedures, and we forget that this is one of the complications and a deadly one, as this case well reminds us. So preventing it, being very careful when you're doing these things is super important.
6: Good reminders, because I think we place a lot of these central lines. Sometimes we pull them, but we haven't really had that training or reviewed that training in a long time. So it's a good reminder of what we need to do with these lines and when we're placing these lines to minimize that risk. Our next piece was on esophageal perforation. I got to sit down with Britt Long and talk about this presentation. Again, another one of these that we don't see often, but we do think about quite a bit in patients who come in with chest pain. And Borhobs is the classic form of esophageal perforation. There is a triad here. And Jen, you can go ahead and guess, how good is that triad? Oh, probably terrible. Not that good. Less than 50%, less than 50% of people will have Mackler's triad, which is severe vomiting, chest pain, and subcutaneous emphysema. I've only seen one of these with subcutaneous emphysema in my practice, but often they will have the history of severe vomiting before the chest pain started. Britt talks about some of the risk factors here, like if they have known esophageal pathology, they recently had an upper endoscopy. Those are things that should set off in our mind that maybe that chest pain isn't the typical things we think about. It's not the heart, but it could be the esophagus. The symptoms here, mostly pain, but only about 70%. Some of them will have dyspnea. Some of them will have fever. There's a lot of different things going on here. And the diagnosis is often going to be made by imaging. The labs are not going to be very helpful here. Chest x-ray is abnormal most of the time, more than 90% of the time. But CT with IV contrast is really your money study. So if you get a chest x-ray and you're like, there's something weird here. I was thinking about esophageal perforation. Go ahead and get the CT scan done. That is going to be really where you get your diagnosis. Very high sensitivity. And as always, it can really help if the person needs to have a surgical procedure done, it can really help to inform the surgeons of what kind of procedure they need, what is going to be the best management. As for our management, of course, we are going to call our consultants, get them on the phone to help out. You're going to want GI, you're going to want surgery. You might even want cardiothoracic surgery, depending on your institution and what you have. And then for us, if they're in shock, resuscitate them, give them broad spectrum IV antibiotics. Most of the time, we're going to give a PPI. We're going to keep the patient NPO. And then we have to really get them to those consultants, whether that is a transfer or bringing the consultants down to the patient to determine what is the next step in management.
5: Yeah, I've seen lots of flavors of this particular diagnosis, and I've seen them looking pretty well. I've also seen them really, really sick when the mediastinitis is more advanced. You know, this is one of those really a surgical disease that we can only do limited things. So the resuscitation, you know, getting aggressive with your antibiotics and making sure you call the right specialist are really the things that you can do. But just know that This can go from not that bad to very bad pretty quickly, just depending on where they are in their progression of disease and how bad the perforation is. Jason Woods! This month, we have a great PEDS piece on intranasal medication administration, specifically analgesia. And Jason Woods sits down with Dr. C from Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital in New York, someone we haven't heard from before. He's really, really good. An expert on the topic has published on it and really reviews from soup to nuts how intranasal medication administration works and what the benefits are. The obvious benefits are there are no painful needle sticks, which with kids is a huge deal. They also talk about the bioavailability and how to actually get this done, the formulations that you want to use, the doses that are practical, and then walk through some specific examples of what kinds of medications can be used in this scenario. Things like midazolam, things like ketamine, things like fentanyl, all of these potential very, very useful drugs that we can give in this route Again, talking about how volume can be a limiting factor and how you want to deal with that. It can be by adjusting the concentration of the medication, how you actually give it, how long it lasts. It's just a very good overall review. If you haven't done one of these reviews in a while, here you go.
6: We've talked about intranasal meds a couple of times. Just recently, March 2022, we talked about ketamine intranasal. We talked about the idea of ketadex. This was a Sean Nort piece. And I think that you're right. This is really important in pediatric patients, but if you get comfortable with this, It's really useful in adult patients as well. And I think the more comfort we get with intranasal medications, the more applications we find for it. I trained somewhere where we almost did no intranasal meds. And the place I work now, we do a lot of intranasal meds. And so I'm becoming more comfortable with it, not just in the pediatric patients, but also in the adult patients that either they have poor IV access or they're really scared of needles too. And we can at least give them some anxiolysis, some analgesia while we are doing the next steps to manage that patient. It's hugely beneficial. You want these devices, and, and of course, we don't all have the devices. So we do have a piece from Whit Fisher just about a year ago, Jan, talking about how you can MacGyver one of these intranasal devices, so you can give intranasal meds even if you don't have the fancy device on hand.
5: Yeah, and remember Whit Fisher. It's Whit Fisher is like you know you got to get the Witfisher. It's a thing, right? <laughs> it's, is it a person or is it a thing? You say that all the time. Yeah. What, what do I do here? I don't know. Get the
6: Whitfisher. Fisher. Yes. That's the way to go. <laughs> Witt's going to be so happy that we have used his name multiple times on this particular month when he doesn't even have a piece right. in this month. But Jan, we do have an upcoming piece with Wit, so I can't wait to get Fantastic. to that one. I don't want to give anything away. You, bring me the Wit Fisher stack. It has to do with Extracting foreign bodies, but not the glass like we talked about up front. Different kinds of foreign bodies that we're going to get into.
4: Okay, it looks like we've got a Frenchman wedged between a rock and a hard place. I don't know how we're going to get him out. Uh, why don't we get the Whit Fisher? That's the best thing for extraction of foreign bodies. You know, that's a good idea. Cher sure rep. Je n'apprécie pas le fait que tu m'appelles un foreign body. Un c'est toi le foreign body. Okay, give
6: me a break, will ya? It's just a joke.
10: Rick's Rants!
6: One change that many of you may notice is that Rick's Rants is no longer in this month. We're actually breaking Rick's pieces out a bit. So on 7-8, on July 8th, you'll get a new segment in your MRAP app feed, which is going to be Rick's Corner.
5: Yeah, this is kind of exciting. These are going to be longer pieces with Rick discussing various areas of emergency medicine with experts and legends in our field. This month's piece is with John Schufelt on business and entrepreneurialism in emergency medicine. It's really great. And if you're interested in that, I'm sure this is going to be right up your alley.
6: And the hard part, Jan, was that we were getting these really involved segments that were so good and then trying to boil them down into this 10 minute time slot that we have didn't make any sense anymore. And nobody really wants to muzzle Rick or or, or edit Rick because this stuff is so high quality. It's so good. And we're hoping that the Rick's Corners are going to be more present with him again, talking to friends of his that he's known forever that have been in our field forever that we all know and hear from them as they reflect on their long practice. But that doesn't mean that Rick's rants are going to be gone because we're still going to have those from time to time when Rick has a, a short piece that he wants to put in the main show we will still be featuring those as well.
5: Yeah, it's going to be great. And thanks, Rick, for always continuing to contribute to the segments. But Jan, that's that's it for the month. That is July. That's all that we covered
6: this month. Really some fantastic stuff here. And I'll tell you that I learned a ton, especially in that intranasal segment, things that I want to try, that I want to do when I get back to work. So I hope that our audience got as much out of it as I did.
5: Yeah, I hope so, too. And I agree. I'm going to go look at that atomizer next time I'm on my shift. Make sure I know where that mucosal atomizer is because I want to start experimenting with it as well. So hope you guys really enjoyed this month. It's July, man. We're middle of the summer. We're halfway through the year. It's fantastic.
6: Absolutely. And we can't wait to see you all next month. Jan, I can't wait to be back on with you next month. And until then, remember to keep doing what you do because what you do matters.
12: Next time on NWRAP. When's the last time you thought about hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH?
4: So pretty much anyone who's listening to this podcast has run into this problem at some point during their practice.
5: The first thing that came to my mind was, oh
1: dear, someone's had a heart attack because I couldn't see what was happening. Actively bagging, bleeding, nope pressure at this point this is sounding pretty terrible and now the kid is gasping sweating hypoxemic can barely breathe the kid hits your door what is your first move (music)
4: it's time for the July Easter egg. We know everyone's celebrating the birth of Alexander von Poppenhoven, the Flemish religious sculptor born in Antwerp on July 4th, 1669, but we're gonna take you back to two Julys ago. Which actually sounds like an island off the coast of Chile, the Galapagos. Two Julys ago, to the Galapagos, archipelago. Anyway, Chile, by the way, not to be confused with the barbecue sauce, the thing with the beans and the tomatoes. Chili? Oh! Two Julys ago, Yay! we had an important public service announcement for anyone celebrating Bastille Day 10 days early. Hello, Dr. Sklar here for an important announcement that'll make your 4th of July safe and fun. First of all, fireworks are extremely dangerous. You never want to pick one up with your fingers, like I'm doing with this dud firework that doesn't work, or hold one up next to your ear.
6: Hello?
4: I'm going to call up the manufacturer. Dude, fireworks
16: corporation,
4: how can I help you? Listen, one of your fireworks that you advertise as being a dud is actually a working firework. I'm
8: sorry, sir, we don't
4: actually make any dud fireworks. What do you mean you don't make dud fireworks? It says it on the package, dud. Oh, it says, dude, fireworks. Is that, that's really how you meant it? Yes, exactly. So you don't make dud fireworks? No. So they all work? Exactly. None of them are duds. Alright, I'm gonna to to call you back. I made a lot of demonstration kits with the third fireworks. Okay, I'll call you back. Okay,
14: yeah, wonderful.